You're listening to We, we, we the Aether Podcast, within and without. Welcome. Robert, thank you for taking the time to come on today. I really appreciate it. I'm sure a lot of the listeners and, and watchers of this podcast are really going to appreciate it as well because you have so much to share and you are a true polymath in, in, in the true sense of the word. Um, so just to kick things off, do you mind introducing yourself, what it is you're involved sure. in on a day-to-day basis? Sure. My name is uh, Robert Grant and I uh, have been largely working for the last 25 years or so in industry and business. And in the last I'd say five to seven years, I started transitioning into other areas. I I started out mainly in healthcare, um, but also very interested in laser technologies as as well as uh, working in uh, FinTech and uh, and other such fields. And more recently, I kind of uh, had this big change in my life, probably starting in 2012, but really culminating in 2016. I had been a pharma CEO (laughs) of all things, right? That's probably, uh, I, I'm hoping that, uh, that, you know, everyone will be kind to the notion that not all pharma CEOs are like these evil, uh, iconoclastic, you know, sort of like Smithers type of people, right, on, on The Simpsons. Um, you know, it's, I don't think that the pharma industry is necessarily uh, has people that are individually bad, but I, I do think that the pharmaceutical industry is, you know, very much money oriented. And so, uh, and profit driven. And as companies are, it's kind of the whole system that we have right now, which is very, um, I guess, scarcity based. And so I broke away from that, you know, having been a CEO of a very large pharma company uh, and actually led uh, two large pharma companies. And then I started my own group of companies in 2012, uh, which was kind of an act of rebellion. And uh, and now those companies are, are have grown into 16 different companies inside our portfolio. Uh, the group of companies I run is called Strasby Crown, um, and we have uh, energy, fintech uh, companies, healthcare services, um, healthcare finance, as well as pharmaceuticals. Uh, and, and, and also, I most recently started a company that relates to the mathematics work that I've been doing. Uh, I discovered the first prime number pattern, and uh, that pattern basically uh, allows us to predict prime numbers infinitely. And so when I published that, I, I learned from some of my friends in the cryptography space that that was a real problem for encryption potentially. And so then we needed a new type of encryption modality that could replace the, the standard that's in place right now. And so that company is called Crown Sterling. But you know, I think most probably people would recognize uh, for your viewership me uh, potentially as uh, someone who's very involved in, in mathematics and geometry. Uh, but, but not just looking at mathematics in a nameless, faceless sort of way, but how mathematics actually shows, uh, you know, the connectedness of the entire universe. And I do a lot of work in physics. I, I, I'm partners with Nassim Haramain, who's a famous physicist. Uh, we've been working together now for about six years or so. And, um, and I'm also uh, involved with him with Resonance Academy and Resonance Foundation. And so, you know, I just started sharing about uh, only two years ago, I started sharing my work. And I, I was in, invited to go to uh, Egypt uh, with Nassim, and he asked me to present the work that he had known all about uh, mathematically um, because we were working on a lot of physics projects together. And um, I'd never shared it openly or widely before. And, uh, and I was astounded when half the room was in tears at the end of the talk because I presented math not in the way that we learned in junior high. I presented it like a language and speaking to the universe and speaking with the universe. And there is a language, just like all languages, there's a syntax to it. There are verbs, there are nouns, 
uh, there's meanings that come behind those those numbers. And, and we can often just sort of look at it like a computer sheet, you know, ones and zeros or decimal numbers. And it just seems so impersonal, but actually uh, each number is a fragment or a fractal of consciousness. And when you can see it in that context and see how they arrange in beautiful geometries and then can actually take in the communication from the universe because it is the universal language, uh, it really has an astounding impact on consciousness. And, and those are the things that I've probably become most interested in. Uh, I'm also very interested in Egyptology and, um, and I just got back from Egypt. So I'll be happy to answer any questions about that. Uh, and uh, I, I discovered the first writing inside the Great Pyramid on the sarcophagus in May of 2018. And it was uh, strangely an alpha omega symbol that had not been seen before uh, that's, that's pressed into the rose granite sarcophagus. And uh, on my last trip, I just discovered uh, with our whole team of people, about 50 people were with me, uh, we discovered about eight new stone reliefs inside the King's Chamber. Uh, and it was all tied to a very interesting encryption left to us by Leonardo da Vinci. So I'm uh, you know, interested in lots of different things. Uh, I'm a musician and, uh, and an artist as well. And uh, that's part of my life that I haven't really tapped in until probably the last few years. I was always a musician from the beginning, but, but I hadn't been like an artist or a sculptor until the last several years. And I started getting into that too. And I'm just really loving life right now and loving the journey. So I'm really pleased to be here with you, Adam, and uh, a big fan of your work too. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, and do you find that you're just you're accessing and tapping into that creative aspect of your, of your personality more so now that you're getting involved in all this stuff versus, you know, before when you were into the CEO, the, you know, director position in the pharmaceuticals, do you feel like back then there was just something lacking and, and, and missing that you just couldn't quite, you know, pin? No, it's kind of funny. It's like, I was thinking about this just, just yesterday. I was driving into the office where like half the people were gone and today the other half that were there are now gone because of yeah. the coronavirus <laughs> thing. Um, you know, it's funny, I was asking myself the question, why is it that I chose to go into business? Because when I was an undergrad, I had a music scholarship um, and I, I loved music. I was really into it, performance major. And then I figured out one day that I need to make money because I couldn't make my tuition. You know, I didn't have anyone paying for my school or anything. And, and I thought, well, geez, I better go get jobs. So I got like three jobs while I was in, in, in college. And, um, and I had to really practice some ingenuity because there was no way I could pay tuition. I could pay everything and I had to kind of cover it all for myself. And I ended up choosing to go into business because it was most expedient to making money. Mm. It wasn't because like I loved it. And the other thing that I did like about it actually was that I didn't have to choose any specialty. I was interested in, uh, I was interested in, in, in many different areas like biology and medicine and law and business and you know, all kinds of different areas like science and math and everything. And so I thought, well, kind of not forcing me to choose a particular subject because then I'd be cutting off all the others, right? I chose business because I felt like I wasn't choosing, I was not uh, eliminating anything by doing that, right? And, and I'd always been kind of like, I felt like I should be a, a jack of all trades and not necessarily a master of any. And, and so I, I went into the business realm and that was really the reason why I went into business. I, I had to raise a family and I had to pay bills. And so I chose business. And I think that's a problem in our, in our educational system, candidly. We force people into buckets very early. 
in their lives. And I think it all stems back from scarcity concept because you know, we think we only have so much time. So if I only have so much time, then I have to choose one career and I can only do that one career. Whereas actually I was still a musician at heart and I was an artist that I didn't even know it, you know, the poet that didn't know it. And mm -hmm. I, I uh, felt like something was missing and I was very successful at building up this persona, you know, building up this, who is Robert Grant to the outside world and, and all of the things that come along with that, you know, the, the lifestyle, the, the house, the car, the family, the, you know, all the boxes got checked, but I was just, eliminating in a way the other half of myself that I didn't want to show the world or I didn't want to associate with maybe because I was a little ashamed of it. I remember when I finally chose uh, to go into business and I wanted to buckle down as it were, I needed to have some discipline. Right. And I never told anyone anymore that I was a musician hmm. or that I even love music because I started associating musicians with kind of like this lackadaisical attitude of like, you know, mm -hmm. kind of the beatnik, right? Who, I don't know why I came up with that association. It clearly isn't true, but, but I, I don't know. I didn't want to associate with that side of myself. And so as I started to separate out the, the parts of me into the parts I wanted to project to the outside world and then the parts that I wanted to hide from the outside world, that separation got greater and greater and greater until, you know, you finally end up having a confrontation with that shadow that you've created, right? Mm -hmm. Which is still there. And, you know, you can skip rungs on the ladder. You know, I was the youngest CEO of a healthcare company that's publicly traded uh, in the world when I was 32 years old. And that was like, I was very lucky and successful and I felt very blessed. So I was riding that train and I was going to ride that horse all the way until finally you get to a point in life where I remember I had just gotten an award from like University of California, Irvine, you know, cause they knew that I could help fill tables. Right. Uh, if I, if they gave me an award, like man of the year type of thing, cause I was uh, teaching there at UCI also and entrepreneurship and, and other stuff. And, and then I was asked by Chapman university to give the commencement speech. And my mother gave me a hug and she's like, Sana, I never thought, that you were going to be successful like this, you know, I hope you're not trying to do this to prove something to me, right? Because my mom candidly love her to death, but she was that kind of mom, a little bit tiger mom that would say to me, Oh, you know, you got all A's and one A minus next time. If you get all A's and no A minuses, then I'll really love you. Uh, wow. Yeah. Right? Pretty yeah. brutal, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I always felt like in the back of my mind, and, and it's funny because when I say that to her now, I, I spoke at their, at my parents' 50th uh, uh, anniversary a few years ago. And I told that story and everybody was like, oh my gosh, right? That's like brutal. And my mom was like, that's why you were successful. It's all because of me, right? It's all because yeah. of me. And I'm like, look, I love you, mom, just the way you are. It's all good. Yeah. It's yeah. all good. But, you know, I, I, I came up against that wall that so many of us experience when there's just something missing. And I think, you know, I was on an airplane flying back from Hong Kong when I was about 42, I think. And the plane, I've actually survived three plane crashes, if you can believe this. I've flown mm -hmm. so much. I've lived in nine countries and I've survived three plane crashes. A lot of people say, oh, I don't want to fly with Robert because he's like been in three plane crashes. I'm like, hey, dude, maybe it's the other way around. 
maybe you want to fly with me because I've survived three plane crashes. Yeah. You know, maybe it's a super lucky thing to fly with me. And, um, but I remember on this plane, it, it was like a super turbulent flight. And the old airport in Hong Kong, if you've ever flown to Hong Kong, I mean, literally, there was this airport in Hong Kong that when you'd have a storm, they would have to fly through the buildings, like in a 747. And no joke, you'd fly into Hong Kong and you'd like wave at the people putting their laundry out, right? They're at the same level as you. And they're only like 150 feet from the wing, tip of the wing. It's like, what? It was so scary. And I remember being on one of these flights in super turbulence and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I could die here. <laughs> this, this could all be the end. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? If this is the end, I've lived a great life. I, I, I just felt at that moment, I'm like, I could die. You know, I'm lucky I've had a, a good, good family. I've, I have a daughter that I love and adore, and she loves and adores me. And, you know, I've, I've done all the things. I've seen all the places I want to go to. But then it kind of prompted me to start thinking, well, if I really am not afraid to die now, then am I living life in a way that is going to let me play to win? for the rest of my life, or am I playing not to lose in a way, right? And so I started thinking I might as well live life to the fullest now and go all the way full tilt, right? Like on the old pinball machine. I'm gonna push the pinball machine to tilt because I'm not afraid to die anymore. And what's really, what do I really want to experience? And that's when I started noticing that, you know, I think that's the first time I wrote down in my notebook that duality isn't really what it's perceived to be. And I started writing down, because I had met this guy who, you know, while I was in Hong Kong, after I'd had this thought and discussion in my own mind, I met this guy at the salad bar who worked for my company. I was at Baal Lam at the time. And he had left on a five-year sabbatical. He was the country manager for you know, a large operation in Thailand. You know, I had 11,000 employees in the company. And, and, uh, and so I had not seen or met this guy, but he literally went on a five-year sabbatical. We don't do that in the U.S., right? And I'm like, why did he go on a five-year sabbatical? And why did we let him back? Well, the guy was super successful. And the reason why we let him back is because he had such a legacy of success. And I asked him, where did you go for five years? And he said, I went to a monastery to be a Buddhist monk. And I took a vow of silence for five years. And he's like, I just got done last week. So I'm like, dude, didn't you want to like go home and talk to everybody, you know, first? <laughs> you took a vow of silence for five years and you're talking to me now a week later. That's kind of crazy. I said, what did you, so what was it like? What did you learn, you know, while you did this? And he said, there is no duality. There's only one. And I was like, okay, you need to give me more than that. He goes, it's all an illusion. And I, I, I remember that moment because then flying back to California, I started thinking about the concepts of duality. And I started thinking about Democrats and Republicans and how they were so far polarized from each other. And I started thinking, I put on a piece of paper, I'm like, okay, far right is, you know, probably fascism and far left in a political science perspective is communism. But wait a minute, I can't differentiate between fascism and communism in today's world. Is North Korea a fascist regime or is it a communist regime? They look the same. Mm -hmm. And so I started realizing that it's a circle, right? And that I started thinking, well, well, is this true for other concepts too? So in fact, let me take a word like humble versus arrogant. 
is that also a circle? I mean, is it possible that if you keep going one more step to the extreme that you end up on the other side? And, and that sunk in deeply for me because I started thinking, okay, well, do I know people that become so humble that actually they become arrogant and pious in their humility, mm -hmm. right? Are they, are they pompous in a way because they are self-righteous? And I started thinking, wow, I noticed that too. And we always learn the term, there's a fine line between love and hate, right? And yeah. I, I put every single thing I could think of, like I, I think I had about 200 different concepts like that. I put them on a piece of paper and realized that the far extreme of each of these concepts basically impinged on the other side. And, and then I started realizing, wow, everything really is one. And then you start thinking, well, if I walk north on the earth, I eventually end up south. If I walk west, I eventually end up east. That causes me to start thinking differently about the concept of time as well, by the way. Mm -hmm. we, we make the separation between past, present, and future. Who knows? Maybe now that they've just realized that the universe is truly round, right? That it's spheroid, spheroidal. And that if you fire a photon into it in concept, it should loop back around and end up where it started again. Kind of like throwing one of those boomerangs right? It comes back to you. And if that's the case, then time would be the same. But maybe the distant past becomes the far future and vice versa. And I think there's a lot of research that's going to be going into this over the next, you know, course of the next few years. But this concept of non-duality really hit me hard. And I was in the process of, of deconstructing, I guess, at that moment in time, my whole conditioning and thought process around what is good, what is evil. You think about the three institutions that are sort of the harbingers, right, of, of what is moral, what is amoral, that would be religion. What is, um, what, what is truth and what is falsehood, that would be educational systems, right? And then you've got government that's determining what's lawful and what's unlawful. And all three of those institutions today are in massive disarray. Why? Because people are starting to ask the same questions that I was asking, about this illusion of duality. And they don't wanna to be told anymore what is moral and what is amoral. They don't wanna to be told anymore what is lawful and what is unlawful. They don't wanna to be told anymore you know, um, what is truth and, and what is falsehood from an educational perspective. I mean, it's a fascinating thing to me because today, in today's world, people are so interested in, in learning but have no interest in the educational system. Mm. Yeah. People are so fascinated in community, but have very little interest in participating in government. People are enthralled, right, with, with these different aspects of society that now all of a sudden, you know, they, people want to learn, but they don't want to go to school. People want to be part of community, but they don't want to be part of government, right? I mean, this concept is very, very deep when you think about it. And, and all the structures and strictures in society today that are trying to tell us what is good, what's evil, what's right, wrong, right, what's moral, what's amoral, people are interested more than ever in spirituality, and yet religions are at a difficult spot right now with membership dwindling. And, and you have to ask yourself this question, what does this really mean? And I think it comes back to the empowerment of individuals. I think it comes back to this concept of people wanting to make their own determination and, and people not down anymore with this concept of blame and shame. 
that they cast on themselves or they're casting on others. And, and as, as I kind of went through this process, it kind of woke me up, I guess, you know, to use the, the today's vernacular of woke AF, right? Mm-hmm. I like definitely, I, I think it all started with this concept of looking at duality in a different light and realizing the illusion of it at all. And, and then also realizing that if that's true, then why am I suppressing this other part of my personality, this other side of me? You know, the way to think about this, I, I, I guess, to, uh, as an analogy, is that, you know, I, I have this, um, everyone has one of these on their desk, right? Probably not. This is a Da Vinci Codex, right? It's one of those things, okay. right? The little secrets mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But it's a gold color. And the reason why I show it to you is, is not because it's a codex and it's kind of cool. The reason I show it to you is because the color of this is not really gold. It's reflecting gold right? The real color of this is probably something more like a pale bluish color because that's its absorption color. So if I looked at the spectral analysis of this, then this would be, you know, reflection of gold and it would be absorption of like a pale blue color. Okay. It's just as much pale blue as it is gold. We create the duality perception to see it as only gold. Okay. If we looked at it through a picture that was a negative picture, right? as you can do in photography, we would see the other color. Now, why is this important? It's so true also with our personalities. A narcissism is not true self-love. Narcissism is loving the projection or the reflection we see of ourselves in the mirror. Self-loathing of your personality that would represent the absorbed color or the pale blue in this. It's falling in love with the gold color right? It's falling in love with what you think is projected to the mirror reflection. And actually, true self-love means that you love both, and you integrate both, and you are both. And so what happens to people, and it certainly happened to me, is that as you separate further and further from the shadow, right, or this absorption color, and for me, that was the musician, that was the artist, that was all these other things that was not the pharma CEO, right? As you separate more and more and more from that, eventually you end up having a crisis, right? Because that separation is just like pushing it too far. It's like you're repressing this side of your personality and then it wants to come out. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, midlife crisis, right? I'm gonna go and drive a Porsche now or something. I'm gonna go take a young girlfriend or something like that, right? I'm gonna Mm -hmm. go, I'm gonna get unhinged for a while, right? And we've all seen this. And this is why it happens, because we've made this extreme separation of ourselves until it's no longer tenable, it's no longer sustainable. And you end up in this absolute crisis situation, which then leads to the hero's journey. And finding your way back to oneness, finding your way back to your whole self can be the most beautiful thing that you can experience ever. And and, and so as as I kind of think about this, reflection, absorption, dilemma that we all face, right? That's what society is going through right now. And, and what do you do as soon as you make judgments on yourself? You cast them on others. So the things that you don't like about yourself are the things that you claim other people are doing. There's like this old term, right? If you spot it, that means you got it. Mm-hmm. So the judgment that you're casting on yourself is actually what you don't like about yourself. 
your one side of yourself. And so it's like you're deflecting. This is why we have, you know, unfortunately, certain clergy ending up in certain areas because they want to hide that they have their demons, right? They want to hide that they maybe suffer from pedophilia. And maybe they themselves were abused, right? And that's part of the reason why they are, you know, engaging in that kind of abuse today. It's like this endless cycle, unfortunately, and hopefully it can be broken. But, you know, if, if they suffered from pedophilia, then maybe they would think, well, geez, I better go into a career that I can hide this part of myself because it's absolutely reprehensible. There's no way that anyone would think that if I'm a Catholic priest that I'm going to do this type of stuff, right? And now that's flipped on its head, right? Because everyone looks at it now, even a person who is like not engaged in any pedophilia, they're, they're probably like, hey, I'm not a pedophile because I'm a Catholic priest. That's a tough thing for them to have to experience, I bet. So, you know, this is what's happening with society. And I think as we move more and more to true self-acceptance and self-love, then we'll start seeing major change in the world. And that's what I think, you know, Gandhi means and Bob Marley and all the others that have said, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. I think that's what they really meant. You know, be the non-judgment, be the acceptance that you want to see in the world. So my path was definitely that path. And that's what I experienced. Mm -hmm. And and I feel uh, some degree of joy and responsibility as well to, to share that openly uh, with, with people. Because I, I think that if there's one thing that, you know, being the change you want to see in the world is, it's also recognizing that everything around you is part of you. That you are, they are all just reflections, right, of what's happening inside you. In fact, you could refer to the universe, not as the universe, but the you inverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's funny hearing you speak to these things because I've, I've spoken with on this podcast people that are very, uh, so very on the spiritual side, you know, they're Reiki, Reiki healers and, and master healers, this and that. And they speak to, uh, I've actually think one of them said, you, you inversed exactly uh, as you just described it there. And it's, this is why I love speaking to you and, and love a lot of the work that you do, because you take a lot of the analytical side of things but you bring it over to this philosophical side, which is, which is really beautiful the way you do that, because it's like people that um, don't understand or don't quite resonate with a lot of what those master Reiki healers are speaking about. They may, may resonate more with what you're saying, and it may be a little bit clearer to them in, in how you're expressing it. So now, does this tie in a lot with, you came up with a theory that we're all divisions of one. Does this somewhat tie in with, with that theory? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, going back to the same analysis of the spectral analysis of gold, right? So if, if I were to look at this on spectral analysis, it's going to have, you know, there's 89 electrons on the gold, uh, you know, element on the atom. And what's interesting about that is that it has a certain spectral analysis that will all come together in this color gold. But then it also has an absorption, which is exact opposite of that, right? So the absorption would be the pale blue color. And really all the lines that are not in wavelengths showing up are going to be all the other lines that are going to be absorbed. So it's either absorbing or it's, or it's reflecting, right? Or emitting. And, and so what I realized was that through something called the Rydberg constant, which is uh, part of the Niels Bohr atom model, the Bohr atom model, um, which I think deserves a lot more attention. He was, uh, he was a contemporary of uh, Einstein at the Solvang Convention, you know, back in this period of time, probably there was like this big renaissance in the early 20th century, I would say, in physics. And, and uh, 
the Rydberg constant came out of the Bohr atom model. And what it basically shows is how you can make a conversion from the hydrogen atom between its reflection spectra and its absorption spectra. And it's based on a simple reciprocal value, one over lambda or one over X value. So what I realized then is I was like, wait a minute, if the Rydberg constant allows you to do that and, and make that conversion to wavelengths of light, then why is that not also true when we're looking at us as human beings? Taking this step one step further, right? Which is if everyone around you is your you inverse, right? And you're experiencing these things over and over and over again. I mean, I, for example, I had to experience betrayal, extreme betrayal in my life because I needed to learn unconditional love. We learn through the opposites and the higher self knows what we need to learn. And so, you know, instead of looking at those things that I'm learning as, oh my gosh, I need to learn another thing. Learn to love and embrace it. And that's what actually allows you to transmute through it, right? And change through it. But, but basically, <clears throat> I realized that this Rydberg constant allowed you to run the mathematics and recognize that you are X. And the universe itself is the one over X, both mathematically and in physics. And it's very simple and very beautiful math. It also explains why we have particles and waves because numbers in their one over X values turn very often, depending on which numbers you're talking about, into wave values versus particle values, which would be discrete. So discrete versus continuous values. So yes, I, I believe that we're all divisions of the number one and that that creates infinity within it. You know, it, it's interesting. You could take a number like seven, right? Seven is very unique. It's a very unique number. And today I posted a, a picture of a, a seven pointed star, right? On Instagram. And seven's unique because it recreates this number series of in its one over X value. So one divided by seven equals 0.1428571, repeating infinitely, right? And this 1428574 represents gravity and magnetism, electromagnetism. So the number seven, and from that, it can create the numbers of particle physics that create all matter. Three, six, nine. So you probably heard, you know, this whole famous quote by Nikola Tesla, which is, yeah. you know, yeah. think in terms of vibration, energy, mm -hmm. right? And, and think in terms of, uh, you know, if you know the mysteries of the numbers three, six, and nine, you have the secrets of the universe. Well, all matter is three, six, and nine. The electron is three, six is the proton, and nine is the neutron. And then there are even anti-proton, anti-neutron, and anti-electron, or it's also referred to as positron, which are three other numbers, which are not part of our current base 10 system, but need to be part of our base 12 system. Because we actually have a base 12 mathematical system, just the world doesn't know about it just yet. And, and we're you know, doing all kinds of work here with our math team that I have, about 11 mathematicians and physicists, and we're, we're finding these natural relationships Music has 12 notes in an octave, so should numbers have 12 single digit numbers, right? Embedded within our system. And that's a major shift, uh, you know, to a base 12. And that's why our oldest measurement systems, candidly, are all base 12, right? So the inch, foot, right? These, these imperial systems are on base 12 versus decimal is base 10. And I would argue that the imperial system is, is far more advanced even than the, uh, the, the, the current base 10 system of decimal system.
But nevertheless, what basically it's pointing to is that, you know, literally, mathematically and physics, the, the universe is really just the number one divided. And the number seven can create this infinite series of numbers that creates enough diversity to recreate itself over and over and over again. And that's very unique. Um, and, and so that creates a wave function. So that 0.14285714 repeating infinitely is a wave. And seven becomes a particle in a sense, right? And so as we start looking at numbers differently and looking at it as a language, right? Uh, that opens up our consciousness to this different type of understanding. And this, this new understanding and higher understanding is not one of hyper-reductionism or hyper-specialization. In fact, you won't be able to see it. You won't be able to understand it because it requires connecting lots of dots. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed about Steve Jobs' uh, commencement speech was he, he said, you know, I, I, I could never see how the dots connected in my life until I looked at them in retrospect. Right, but clearly they connected. And if that's the case, then clearly there was some form of destiny at play in his life, right, that he saw. Because if dots connect, that means that there's some sort of invisible hand that's helping those dots even come into play, right? Why did he go to typesetting school, right, early on? And that had a huge impact on when, when computers all had these bitmapped images of fonts, right, that were really ugly and you know, didn't look like a real newspaper or something he realized, oh, I need to have this actual typeset so people will read this like a newspaper. And that had a big impact on where he was going with things. Everything was connected. You know, one of the things that Leonardo da Vinci said, and I actually posted this today as well, is that if you want to have achieve a complete mind, study the art of science, study the science of art, learn how to see and realize that everything is connected. Literally everything is connected. That's the nature of consciousness. So I do believe that, uh, that yes, this theory and a lot more work is gonna be done on this now. Uh, we're gonna be publishing a paper on this, uh, on the subject of being able to turn this concept of the Rydberg constant and wave particle duality into a number theory backed uh, paper that we are gonna be taking for publication and potentially peer review. Very cool. Yeah, that's it's all very exciting stuff. And, and again, I love how how you break it all down. And I wanted to ask you actually two things. Now, in math, would you describe it as a universal language or, or universally a way to communicate? Okay. So I wanted to ask, do you believe that this is one modality to bring us back into oneness, math as, as a language or, or a method of communication? And I would even uh, reference or cite that the Tower of Babel in religion, it almost creates separation. And you speak multiple languages uh, as well. I, I don't think it's been mentioned so far, but coming from that understanding, do you believe that these different languages create this separation, create the duality, and, and they really kind of uh, tie in with the TikTok thinking mind, the really analytical human mind, and, and that mind loves the whole game of separation as well. So it's almost as if the different languages and, and the aspect of duality creates the separation, which, which holds us in the illusion. So do you find that mathematics is a way to bring us out of this illusion and, and back into a universal language or, or a means to communicating with each other on a level that's not necessarily, you know, a base language like we're using English right now, but something that's a little bit higher than that, something that's more tuned in uh, to a higher state of being, you could say that's more understood by the higher self. You could even say that. Mm -hmm. Oh, 100%. So 
you know, one of the things that I discovered in my, you know, I had this big crisis in 2016 where I, you know, it was all inside me, right? It, it ended up manifesting outside of me, but it was all inside me. It all emanated from me. So I don't blame anybody for it. I have nobody to blame but myself. And I don't even blame myself because I, I decided I don't want to feel shame. There's nothing. It's funny, you know, people think that the world is a tough place because people don't like each other and they can't get along. I, I don't believe that. I believe the world's a tough place because people don't like themselves. And when they don't like themselves, they project that on other people. And, and they can't even be aware that they're doing it. It's, that's the nature of narcissism in a way, right? And, and you know, in that context, uh, wants become needs. There's no such thing as, as true needs because you know, we could live without a lot of the stuff that we have, but we really believe we need it. That's because we convinced ourselves that we need it, right? And, and, and so when I, when I experienced that, and I experienced extreme betrayal from a number of people that had been played important roles in my life up to that point in time. It caused me to like draw inward. I was always very extroverted. And all of a sudden, I did not want to go outside. And some thought maybe I was in a depression or something. I was in a funk. And, you know, what I, what I was really sad about candidly and hurt over, but I couldn't even come to terms with it myself, was that while I was always successful, I had lots of friends. People wanted to be around me all the time. But as soon as that success was threatened and, and called into question whether or not I was going to succeed in a fight I was going on with, you know, this battle with, uh, with the venture capital group, then people that had claimed to be my best friend for years and years and my brother and blah, 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 or sister, yada, 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 like literally, you know, bailed. And it came down to it that I had to raise $55 million in a day, in one day, to remain in control of, of my companies and to continue with the mission that I was so strongly believing in. And somehow, some way, I'd lost total faith that I could do it, but somehow, I did it. Uh, my partner and I, we were able to do it in a day and we ended up winning the battle, but it was a, it felt like a Pyrrhic victory because a Pyrrhic victory is when you win, but you felt like you lost at the end because the collateral damage was so great and it was so difficult that it caused me to draw inward. And I remember just being at home and thinking, okay, if, if all these relationships that I had perceived as you know, relatively objective, at least an objective component to it, um, were now ruined, and I, I experienced such extreme betrayal, that I need to question everything. Because if that's my subjective world that I thought was at least had a degree of objectivity, now I need to question even objectivity itself. And so I started over. And I said, okay, what's the most objective of sciences? I'm going to like reconstruct math in my mind. So let's start with one plus one. Is that really two? <laughs> does that, does it really? Okay, check. Yes. Is one plus three, four. Okay, check. I did that for mathematics and spent hours on hours on hours reconstructing and rethinking math. Not as I was taught but learning it as a language. And you're right, I speak eight languages and I've learned the language, I've learned the system of learning languages. Um, I, I, the first language I learned outside of English was Korean, I was 19 years old. And I had a crash course to learn Korean in like three months. And by six months, I was a translator. And 
I learned that I had a talent for it, first of all. I, I could definitely construct. It's like making puzzles in a way, right? And the Korean language syntax is backwards from English. So you don't say, I am going to the store, right? And Chinese would be very simple. I go store. That's it. Three words, very simple. Korean is, is not like that. Korean is, I to the store going am. So it's subject, object, verb rather than subject, verb, object. So you have to wait till the sentence is finished before you can translate the sentence, right? Because you don't know what's being said. And think about how that separates their way of thinking into you know, certain areas. That's why they're good in certain things because they look at things differently. Their whole deductive and inductive reasoning is different because of their language construct, right? In their own minds. And so as I started learning all these other languages, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, and becoming fluent in French and German, because I lived in all these countries also. And after I learned the system for learning languages, I thought, oh, I could learn any language now. You know, I, I stopped at eight because actually I learned more like 12. But it sounded ridiculous to say I speak 12 languages. You know, it sounded ridiculous to say I speak eight languages. But then I started looking at mathematics as a language. And very quickly I realized that the numbers were acting like nouns and that that the irrational numbers were acting like verbs. So the mathematical constants were the verbs of action. You know, we append, we take a word like text, which is a noun, we append ing to it, which is an unfinished action, right? Or we make it into a gerund to text or texting. And that unfinished action means that it's a verb that's happening, right? And, and so I, I applied that same concept to irrational numbers and said, okay, if it has an infinite tail on it, that's equivalent of the ing. So 3.1415926 is pi, and that is circling a diameter. Circling, it's the ing. So the math constants became the verbs. And then I realized that the sentences were arranged in syntax that happened and occurs through geometry inscribed within circles. So the geometry itself is speaking to us. You know, there are certain geometries that seriously, um, they are embedded with information that speaks to your subconscious. You could think of your subconscious as like a QR code reader, right? Where you look at a QR code and you don't even have to read anything consciously. It's just being brought into you subconsciously. And, and that is very real. I'm, I'm telling you, that is extremely real. And there have been lots of tests on that as well, uh, and scientific tests on how people's moods can change. We see this with color therapy. We see this because those are all just different forms of geometries too. Mm -hmm. We yeah. see it with geometry therapy, and that's why people like to look at mandalas. Yeah, And, and it can really change your, your way of thinking and consciousness. So for me, it absolutely is a language, and, and it is the universal language. And people think that math is unemotional. Um, not true at all. Mathematics, when you understand what's being communicated, embeds within it all the emotion that could ever be communicated through any linguistic sense. And, and that, that is where, you know, me realizing, you know, I think the first way I realized that, that, that it is a universal language is when I started experiencing a lot of synchronicities. We all have probably experienced people that are on your viewership here seeing the same number series over and over again. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, yeah. How I, often do you experience that? Oh, jeez. You know, honestly, for the past two months, 
uh, I've been experiencing a, a massive amount of synchronicities beyond just numbers. I mean, I'm talking like dates aligning with, you know, it's, it's just, it's been crazy. Um, yeah, right. all the time. Yeah. And so numbers are usually the first thing that people start noticing, right? As like repeating, I'll see a license plate. It's like, well, one, 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 or I'll see one, one, one somewhere else or the clock. Every time I wake up in the middle of the night, it's 444. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and people report that all the time. And, and actually, this is a phenomenon that was very well documented by Carl Jung, the famous psychologist and alchemist, by the way. And he calls them synchronicities. Right. These synchronicities are actually the mechanism through which your subconscious mind is speaking to your conscious mind. It's the language that it uses. And as you start piecing that together more and more, you'll realize, well, if that is the language that the subconscious is using to speak to my conscious mind, it's like there's a veil where they can't communicate with each other. They, they, they want to like, we've created this extreme separation. And then all of a sudden your subconscious says, hey, I'm still here, right? Don't forget about me, right? I'm your shadow. And in Carl Jung psychology, that's called, for a woman, it's called the animus. And for a man, it's called the anima. Now, last night I had dinner with uh, some people from, um, they were trying to get me onto a show uh, that, called The Real Indiana Jones, right? And, uh, and, and one of the guys that was there pitching, you know, pitching me uh, last night, fantastic person, he brought his fiance. And his fiance is, is pretty young. She's like 27 years old, beautiful gal. And she's an equestrian. So she likes to ride horses and she does like horse jumping. And so I asked her, what's the name of your horse? And she shows me the horse. It's kind of a dark brown, blackish horse, really beautiful horse, 16 and a half hands high, you know, big horse. And, and, and she says, oh, the name of my horse. I didn't get to choose the name, but the name was chosen already when I bought the horse. I said, what was the name? She said, Animus. Hmm. And I immediately was like, oh, synchronicity. <laughs> First of all, I've never heard of a horse with the name of Animus. Yeah, yeah. But animus represents the shadow for women. It's a male figure. And so when I explained this to her, I said, you know what? This actually is probably a representation of uh, a symbology to you of, you know, you've got this other side of your personality that is your masculine side. And everyone has masculine and feminine energy, right? It's, it's balanced. It has to be. Everything in the universe is balanced. For every action, there must be an equal opposite reaction, right? That's why we have an equal number of Republicans and an equal number of Democrats. And elections are won and lost based on that 1% in the middle, right? And, and usually it's an anger factor, right? One way or the other. If the Democrats are more angry, then more people go out and vote. If the Republicans are more angry, then more people go out and vote. And it's just this pendulum swing. And I just sit back and laugh at it because it's now ridiculous, right? It's just funny. But when I said to her last night that the animus and the horse represents this free spirit, and this horse is kept in, you know, it's stable. And it's representing how you are keeping that aspect of your life, that other side of yourself, in the stable, right? When actually it wants to run free and her face just went white. And she was like, oh my gosh, like I just, you know, uncovered her, right? Mm -hmm. or, or exposed her in a way. And we all have this, for, for men, it's the anima, right? It's this, 
this representation of the moon, and this comes back to alchemical study, right, and hermeticism, which a lot of people stop with Carl Jung at the psychology, but they don't go into his great life's work, which was hermeticism. A lot of people stop with Isaac Newton and, and don't go beyond the, the science that we learn in school, which is on gravitation and inverse square law and stuff like that, when 80% of his life work was actually alchemical and, and hermetic, right? And same thing with Leonardo da Vinci, by the way. Every one of the polymaths were all hermeticists, without exception. It's, it's a path that you are drawn to as you start to merge with your shadow, as you start to learn to merge with your shadow. And it's about learning to balance your brain. If you're going into one segment of science, pure physics, for example, you will hinder your ability to learn more physics. This is part of the, the way this works. The only way you can learn more physics is when you start to branch out into the connectivity to music, to art, to mathematics, to philosophy, and spirituality. The doorway to higher learning is all through spirituality. It is not, you know, we think that science and spirituality have to be separate. No, the path to higher science is actually spirituality. That's the portal because there's an Akashic field. We think that our thoughts are inside our brains. They're not, you know, looking for, and this is one of the quotes by my friend, Nassim, you know, looking for thoughts inside the brain is like looking for the radio announcer inside the radio box. It's not there. Your thoughts, when they come into your mind, are actually from a field around you. And, and science today is starting to finally realize this because they know that when you've got certain brain centers that do certain autonomic functions of the body, right? The things that you're not thinking about, you know, breathing, for example. If all of a sudden that part of your brain gets destroyed, right, or experiences some infarction or necrosis or something, then all of a sudden, you through neuroplasticity, the ability to do that goes to another side of your brain. Well, how is that even possible, right? It's, it's possible because the thoughts in this whole process is not actually inside your brain. It's not there. It's a field. So you can think of it more like cloud computing in a sense, right? And so from that context, we start to look at alchemy in a different light, right? We come here to experience this duality, to learn and perceive our way back, to overcome our karmic loops, right? Those things that we keep experiencing over and over and over again, those patterns that start out like synchronicities, and then we start realizing that they're macro patterns, the cycles that we see in our life, until we finally transmute them through accepting them. It's through accepting them that we actually learn to, to transcend beyond them or transcend through them by loving and accepting the experience because the higher self knows what you need. And, and that to me is, you know, where there's a merger of science and spirituality. It's, it's not the other way around. So actually what you need to do to be able to tap into this field. So think of our minds as more like a radio receiver. And right now the big expression that's coming is one and the shift is coming is that the heart and mind are merging, right? The heart and mind, this is the balance of the masculine and feminine. You know, it's not just about the feminine rising. The masculine and feminine together rise as the feminine rises. As we merge with the anima, as we merge with our animus. And when those two things come together into one whole, 
it's it's the most powerful thing you can experience. And you know, I think that's that's what Hermeticism is actually pointing to. It's all about finding that balance. And the way you get to higher learning in science is to follow your mind as a spiral so that you're not just going to go, I'm going to go physics, physics, deep, 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 deep into physics. That's not how you discover new physics. You discover new physics by broadening your perspective. You discover new things, new applications by connecting dots across all these different aspects. And all of it comes back to one math uh, constant, which is phi, Fibonacci. It is all about that. And you can even say that the Fibonacci symbol, which I'll just draw for you here, is actually <clears throat> the brain. Left and right halves merging into one. Mm. This is the left and right lobe. It's the masculine and feminine. You know, the, for, for right-handed people, you know, the left brain is the logic center. It's the part of your brain that tells you, no, don't do it. Don't take the risk. It's the part of your brain that controls mathematics. It's part of the brain that uh, controls science and the scientific method. And it's the side of your brain that literally says no to most of the things that you're thinking you might want to do. And then the other side, the creative side, the feminine side is, is wilder. It's got more emotion associated with it. It's got like a splash of color all through it, right? It's not just binary code. But what is powerful is when those two halves of the brain come together as one and, and merges also with the heart, that, that emotional aspect. When you, when you merge with the, the left brain merges with the right brain across the corpus callosum it cannot help but also merge with the heart brain. And there are actually uh, nerves inside the heart that mimic the brain. So you start thinking with your heart in addition to being able to think with your brain, or rather instead of think, how about receive, right? Like a radio receiver. Mm -hmm. The way you attenuate, the way you get that signal straight is by balancing, having experiences that are broad, making sure that you know, you're, you're, you're not only thinking about physics all day or mathematics all day, because if I only did mathematics all day, that wouldn't work either. If I only did music all day, that doesn't work either. Looking and realizing that everything is connected, just as Da Vinci said to us, right? To achieve the complete mind, study the art of science, study the science of art. One side of the brain is art, the other side of the brain is science. It's that simple. And once we realize that, then we can tap in to this higher, higher understanding and knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's so fascinating because that's what Isaac Newton did. That's what Rene Descartes did. That's what, you know, all the people throughout history, the philosophers, uh, Plato, Socrates, they all spent time in Egypt too. They all go to Egypt. Yeah, I was about to uh, give a good segue into uh, Egyptology a little bit and uh, ancient Egypt because they in large part really did understand the heart i would say much more than and we've come to it's, it's almost like over you know the centuries now we've so, suddenly attributed more value to the thinking mind than the heart and we don't think that the heart has such immense power which it truly does so did you notice during your trip to egypt that uh, did you encounter anyone that really had uh, any philosophies around around uh, the value of the heart i guess you could say or, or how plays a role in ancient egypt Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it is fascinating because, you know, I, I remember the night. So the whole week in 2018, before I went to Egypt by myself, um, I was with a group of CEOs and we went to Israel 
for a week. And um, I was kind of following this whole alchemical path and journey that I teach on my courses on resonance. And the whole week was seeing the symbology of the Merkaba because I'm in Israel, which is Star of David, right? And that is the merger of masculine and feminine. It's very ancient symbology. And, and so um, as I went through Israel and while I was drawing in my notebook that week, and it was an incredibly spiritual experience for me, I kept drawing the sacred geometry of the letters Alpha Omega. And, and I didn't know why. Now I knew I was gonna spend the night in the pyramid. I've actually spent five nights in the pyramid now. I think I've done it more than, than anybody I know. I, I, maybe there's people that have done it more, but they actually gave me the key to the pyramid last time. I was there. <laughs> like, like, you know, oh, you, you like, stayed enough, you can have the key. This is like the concierge key, right? I get the concierge yeah. key to the pyramid. I actually have a picture of me holding the key and then unlocking the pyramid, which was pretty cool. But, um, you know, it, it was interesting for me because I drew this Alpha Omega like 20 times during this week and I was kind of obsessed with it. I didn't even know why I kept being obsessed with it. And, and I knew I was going to be going to the pyramid on May 7th. And, uh, you know, I, the night before I was in Israel still, and, and I, we had a dinner uh, with the group inside Zedekiah's cave, which is uh, underneath the Dome of the Rock. So Zedekiah's cave is where the Ark of the Covenant was supposedly hidden for over a thousand years from the Bible. And I hadn't planned to be there. I didn't even know the schedule. It was a secret schedule the entire time. One of my best friends set it up and he's Israeli and, and, I, and his name is Boaz. Uh, as in like Boaz and Jaquin, the two pillars of the uh, mm. alchemy and, and the hermetic wisdom that you also find on the tarot cards as well, find the Hierophant. And my friend Boaz set up the whole trip and everything. He does a great job. We did it in 2007. We did it again this time. It was a very different trip this time. It was very spiritually oriented. But as, uh, as I was in this cave, I was like, whoa, this is Zedekiah's cave. Like no one gets to go in this place. This is like super rare to be in here. And they had this beautiful candelabra dinner set up. I mean, the harpist in the background and, you know, it was like this really, really swank event. Well, I was the chairman of the group. And so I had to uh, give a little speech that night. It was the last night we were going to be in Israel. We'd had an epic week. Uh, we went to Syria. We did all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was a really, really cool week. Uh, all got baptized in the river Jordan. And, and it wasn't religious. It was just like, oh, here we are, River Jordan. You want to get baptized? Of course, why not, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, and so I kind of said, where's the bathroom <laughs> in this place, in this cave, right? Uh, and, and I'm like, I need to prepare my, my remarks type of thing. And I, of course, didn't go to the bathroom, but I jumped the rope and went deep into the cave, snuck into the cave. And they're like, do not enter signs everywhere and everything. And, of course, I, I, I was in pitch black darkness because I didn't want to be seen. And then as I got probably 200 feet into the cave, I turned my iPhone flashlight on because at some point I was kind of getting scared too. It was really dark. And, and I kept walking inside this cave and I walked probably maybe another thousand feet or so into deep into this cave. And I was looking for the spot. I was just trying to follow my heart as to where might the Ark of the Covenant have been hidden. Right. And I find the end of the cave and I find this mound of quartz crystal. So all the stone in there was limestone. That's what was used to quarry uh, the stone for 
the stone that was used to build uh, Solomon's temple, as well as uh, major chunks of Herod's temple after that, after Solomon's temple was destroyed in about 600 BC by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? When he came and took Israel captive. And, and so I find this spot with this mound of, of crystal, which was bizarre because the rest of the cave was not like that at all. And it was probably 10 feet in diameter, I would say. And it had steps and like an altar, right? Uh, and, and so I was like looking at this and I looked down, I got all of this on video. In fact, and if you look on my Instagram page, you can find this video somewhere along the way. And I looked down and I see carved into the floor of this cave, two letters, Alpha Omega. So I was like, whoa, that's kind of weird, right? And so something was special about that moment. Well, I didn't know this, but on that very night, every year since 1848, up until 1948, when Israel was formed as a nation, so for 100 years, the Royal Arch Freemasons stand on that very spot to celebrate the Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. On that exact same day, at 6 p.m., right? So it was now late at night, and, and it was, you know, late, late in the evening that I was, that I was there. And it was going to be in the next 24 hours that they were going to have that Royal Arch Freemason. They stopped from 1948 until 1969 uh, when they started up again because uh, it, it's actually this, this plot of land is not part of Israel. Technically, it's part of Jordan. It's in Jordan. And so the Israel government uh, wasn't allowing people to do it because there was, you know, Six-day war stuff all going on. It was like back in that very, very tumultuous time. And on that very spot, right, is where they stand to celebrate the Ark of the Covenant every year, which I found on a reference in Wikipedia, shockingly, uh, about six months after I'd been there doing that. Well, the next night, I go to uh, Egypt. And I, uh, I'm taking 12 of my friends with me. So lots of CEO guys also, they're just buddies of mine. And, uh, and we go into the king's chamber and literally the first guy lays down in the sarcophagus because I wanted them all to experience that because I'd done it already. And they find the resonance frequency and it's uh, exactly 117 hertz, which is 432 hertz tuning, right? And it's a letter, it's, a, it's a, an A sharp. So you can do any note in the, in the triplet right, of that F-sharp major chord. So F-sharp major chord would be F-sharp, A-sharp, C-sharp, F-sharp, right? And, and then you could do it in five-part harmony as well, but you can't do that with your voice. But if you, if you just do an ohm chant at that exact resonance frequency of 117 hertz, and it would be, you know, you take it up a few octaves, it would be, you know, 234 and 468. That's part of the 432 tuning, right? And they're adding up to a digital root of nine. Then, then you, the, the chamber starts to make this noise. Right when you find that frequency, it goes wah, 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 loud, like really loud. And you're laying inside there and you can feel this electromagnetic kind of wave coming over you, right? And I had done that before, but I had not done it for, you know, the night that I was there this night, I spent two nights in the pyramid and the second night I spent four hours in that box, in the stone box. But the first time I was there, I was looking down at my friend who was laying in there doing it because I wanted him to experience it. And I looked down at the edge of the sarcophagus, I see an alpha omega on the edge of the sarcophagus. And I knew that famously the pyramid had never had any writing or hieroglyphics in it. So how in the hell is it that I'm randomly seeing 
alpha omega on the rim of the pyramid. I mean, the odds of that are just ridiculous. And I've been drawing it in my notebook all week. It had been in my consciousness all week. And, and so I was like, wow. So I grabbed the two Egyptologists that were with us. Actually, there were four. And I said, have you guys seen this before? And they're like, did you make this? Like, yeah, yeah, I chipped it out just now. I was about to say, yeah, you chiseled it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. This, this is rose granite, okay? Rose granite is a very special kind of granite because it is a very high percentage of quartz in that granite, rose quartz. Now, rose quartz has a piezoelectric quality. That's why it's used in, you know, uh, pacemakers to, to, to do things that are like piezoelectric crystals, right, that are inside. And they can carry charge with motion, right? With vibration, they carry charge. So it's an electric chamber, right? I, I don't believe for a moment that anyone was ever a mummy inside that sarcophagus, not for a moment. So I experienced this while I'm there and these guys are like, did you chip this out? I'm like, no, come on, you guys checked me. I had no tools coming in, except I had a laser measure system, right? Because Alan Green, a partner of mine now asked me to measure the chamber because he found some mathematical relationships in it that were very profound that relate to the separation of light and darkness, which that separation between blue, pale blue and gold is actually based on a math constant called alpha, which is alpha 137 or one over 137, right? And it's the 33rd prime number. And that's a threshold energy value that, that, that either determines whether a electron will emit a photon or absorb a photon. It's exactly a mirror. Think of 137 as the mirror, right? And even the, the Hebrew symbol of Yahweh, right, which you may have seen before, which looks, you know, like this. I was actually going to ask you about that in its relation to the, to the actual pyramid itself, right? Right. You see Yahweh right there? Yeah. And it's right backwards, right? So it's yod Hey vav Hey. I looked at that and I said, wait a minute, that's a math equation pi times seven and pi to the seventh power. Mm -hmm. You see it? Yeah. And so I did the math on that. And when you take pi to the seventh power, it's 3,020. That happens to be the exact perimeter and feet of the Great Pyramid. And the uh, pi to uh, pi times seven is 22. So 3,020 divided by 22 equals 137. Hmm. Right, which is whoa. So yeah. wait, Hebrew is actually a math equation. Are you joking me? Right, kind of bizarre, right? And and the name is Alpha, which is I'm Alpha Omega, right? And 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 so as I kind of like was measuring all this, I found that it was exactly thirty one point four inches from the edge of the sarcophagus, which is pi times ten, and mm -hmm. the width of the Alpha Omega was exactly five point six oh five inches which 5.605 squared is pi times 10. And all the mathematical proportions of those two letters were matching perfectly the math constants and proportionality of the Great Pyramid itself, as if they were left by the builder. Because whoever left those markings had the knowledge of what went into building the pyramid, without a doubt. The math is unequivocal, it was there. And, and so as I, as I looked at that and I experienced that, I thought, wow, this whole Egypt thing is special, right? There's something special about Egypt. Every polymath has gone there. 
And I was like, why hasn't Da Vinci gone there? Da Vinci clearly, like probably the world's most famous polymath of all polymaths, and why didn't he go there? So I started looking in these books and I was at the Vatican giving a speech in May last year, uh, speaking at a conference called Humanity 2.0. And I was talking about prime numbers and the prime number discovery. Now it's interesting, that's why I got invited to meet with the Dalai Lama as well, because mm -hmm. when, when you find a pattern to something that's not supposed to have a pattern, then everybody on the spiritual side of the equation starts saying, hey, that's showing this divine hand, right? Because pattern where there's not supposed to be pattern means that there's intelligent design, right? Yeah, certainly not by accident, yeah. Certainly not by accident. And so when I, when, when I was at the Vatican, I went to the Da Vinci Museum and I found this book, like it's this big, it's like literally weighs 60 pounds. And the book is called The Codis Atlantico. It cost a freaking fortune. And I bought it and had it mailed back, right? And inside this book, uh, you know, it's all Da Vinci's notes. And there's like 1,200 or so pages, but it's on parchment paper and it's got explanations for each page. I mean, it's a lot of work that Da Vinci did. And so I found this one letter that is never referenced anywhere or very seldomly referenced. And I even read the, the autobiography, um, or rather the biography by, um, by Walter Isaacson on Da Vinci's life. And there were four years of Da Vinci's life that were missing from history, 1482 to 1486. And um, so I was really trying to find out where he went during that time. And there was one obscure reference I found on the internet saying, what is this thing that Da Vinci went into this cave? And, you know, he, he like faced his shadow in this cave type of thing. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So let me see if I can find that. Well, I find this letter inside this Codice Atlantico that is written as a draft letter. And it's titled to the debit dar of the Sultan of Cairo, Babylon. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Da Vinci's writing a letter to somebody that's working for the Sultan of Cairo, and uh, and historians believe that it's all fiction. Why would he write a draft letter in fiction? Doesn't really make sense. So I started digging deeper into it. Now the ancient name of the Giza Plateau is is Ross Tau, the Rose Tau, right? Tau is in the Greek letter, and and Taurus, the bull, right? In Greek is Tauros, T A U R O S. And so literally, Rostau is backwards. And that's where the word Rosicrucian comes from because Tau is a reference, it's the letter T. It's also a reference to a cross, right? So Rose Cross, Rosicrucian, right? Now, Da Vinci was a Rosicrucian as well. He's, if you go on the Amorc website for Rosicrucians, for Rosicrucians, you'll find that they have reference to Da Vinci right on there. They're like, they claim him as their, one of their, you know, Renaissance founders. And, and so I was like, Okay, this is interesting. So I'm looking at this letter now to this Devadar. And what I find is that he gives a very detailed account of his travel and sojourn to Egypt. And then he says, and then we finally arrived in Egypt. We finally arrived in Cairo. And I'm like, what the? This is not anywhere in any other books about Da Vinci. And it's right here in a letter undisputed to be written by his hand. So clearly da Vinci went to Egypt. So my mind is racing now, right? Cause this is just over Christmas. Mm. And, and I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. So I start reading the rest 
And in this letter, he describes his survey that he had conducted on this project for the Sultan of Cairo. And the, the Sultan of Cairo at that time was a fellow by the name of Kate Bay. Uh, he's a famous philosopher king of the Mamluk Sultans, okay, who were these bodyguard class of people that got control of their country. And this guy turned out to be a philosopher king of bodyguards, I guess. And that's the word they use. Bodyguards is what Mamluk means. And they fought against the Ottomans, right? The Ottoman Empire. And so I'm like following all this stuff. And, and he tells this whole story about going and surveying the mountains that he referred to as the Taurus Mountains. The Taurus Mountains. In fact, he refers to it as the Taurus Mountain. So the Bull Mountain. And he says in his description that the Taurus Mountain is as high as it, as it touches the sky, that there are three peaks of this Taurus Mountain, that it is white and glimmering limestone, and that it has exactly orientation pointing due north, because he actually describes and says that on one side of the pyramid from you know uh, daytime up until noon, it has an equal amount of light on both sides. So that means the only way that can happen on the east and west side is if it's pointed due north, right? And so, and he's talking about the shadow and how far the shadow is cast. It's like lots of detail. Then he goes into detail talking about the cavern inside this Taurus mountain, which by now I'm looking at this saying, this is clearly an encryption for Rostow mountain, which is the bull mountain because the entryway into the, king, into the, uh, into the Great Pyramid is the Apis chevrons, right? The Apis chevrons are the representation of the bull, of the cow. And so I'm, I'm like, oh, this is really interesting, right? And I knew that the, the Apis bull is represented by the letter A. And I knew also that the Hathor in Egyptian myth is represented by the Omega. Because if you see the Egyptian Hathor myth pictures, you'll see Hathor has hair that's shaped like the Omega, right? Literally shaped like the Omega symbol. And, and, and so I'm finding all these references, and then I look at the Last Supper by da Vinci, and I noticed that the dimensions of the room of the Last Supper match perfectly the dimensions of the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid. And I'm like, whoa. And there's an altar right in front of the table that everyone's always been, what is that thing, right, at the Last Supper? And when you overlay the picture of the King's Chamber on top of that, and match the walls and everything to it. The sarcophagus lands right in the center of that. So I'm like, whoa, that's really unbelievable. Then I noticed that in the Last Supper, there's like a bull and a cow painted into the wall, right? I notice an eye of Ra on the back. And literally, this is all unfolding. I'm posting all this stuff while I'm in Egypt with a group of 50 people. And I'm posting it all of it real time as I'm getting it, like literally within minutes of getting it. Okay. You know, what do you guys see? And I'm asking people to help me. Do you see something more in this? And it was really cool watching the crowdsourcing of sort of decrypting this mystery. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I did see, uh, I saw some of those posts actually, and I did see some of the, the comments and people really getting into it. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so then I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, if, if we can see this stuff now and use this as a cipher for the King's chamber, what can we find when we get in the king's chamber? Well, guess what? The right wall 
that we uh, that we were in the king's chamber when you're looking at the back wall and you've got the sarcophagus in front of you has a seven and a half foot stone relief of a cow Hathor and the apis bull that sacrificed itself within it which represents the merger of masculine and feminine and represents the merger of the heart brain and it is represented by the alpha omega on the rim of the sarcophagus in fact i think i have this video i can even show it to you if you guys yeah, sure. see it let's see if i can find this here first of all here's the picture of uh the wall and here is the hathor can you see this yeah yeah here's the hathor and you can see the eye right of this cow right here and this is its horn it's like a uh, profile. Now, granted, this is probably at least, I believe, 13,000 years old, mm -hmm. if not more. Okay. So you could see the head, the bull's head. Then you could see the apis bull, the male bull inside the Hathor, where you can see the horns right here. This is the head, right? Comes down to its legs, comes uh, down here in the back, and it's even got a tail right here, comes across. And it's all encompassed within this very large Hathor. And there's even writing on the wall up here that you can see very faintly. And it looks like something between Hebrew and Urdu. And we're trying to get this analyzed right now. But I can probably show you this video. Now, this is a picture of the Alpha Omega on the rim of the sarcophagus. Mm -hmm. It had never been seen by anyone before. Right here. Yeah. You see it? So now do you think these things had been just withered by time, or do you think that they've actually been tampered with by people? I, you know, obviously uh, we looked at the notion that maybe it's like graffiti or something, but these are so old that, first of all, I, I don't see how it could be graffiti. First, this, this relief of the cow and the bull, it's just never been seen because people weren't looking for it that way. I was looking for it to match it up against the, you know, the, the, the Last Supper. And my wife is the one who actually found it, not me. I was busy working on the sarcophagus. But um, actually, here's the video. Let's see if we can play this. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, we just found something else here in the King's Chamber. And then we realized that, you know, it, there was actually a larger cow around it because she hadn't even seen that yet. And you can see the eye right here. Mm -hmm. It matched exactly what was on the right wall of the Last Supper. It was astounding. And, and, and so, you know, it's almost as if the texture of this is also burned. It's like it's burned into the wall. Yeah. The texture is very subtle. It, it reminds me... Of, I don't know if you've seen the picture of the Flower of Life in Abydos, uh, which is burned into the Assyrian temple up high on one of the columns. Mm -hmm. And it's like that. And that's what it feels like. So that night, using this kind of da Vinci uh, encryption of the Last Supper, we were able to find literally eight new reliefs inside the Great Pyramid. Now, this here is where we saw the cow. So there's a cow 
you see the horns, I'm going to trace it with my uh, with mm -hmm. my hand, and you can see the head of the cow and the eyes, and then these are the nostrils right here, and then the ridge of the back of the cow going along here. So it's a very clearly defined ridge right along this, but of course it's subtle because it's encrypted, right? It's yeah. supposed to be subtle. And then we started noticing here as well this eye of Ra. And we found the eye of Ra also in the exact same location on the back wall in the Great Pyramid. Now, Da Vinci had reference going into this cavern and describing it literally perfectly to the way that it is. You know, he even says that he had to crouch down and put his hand on one of his knees and wobble back and forth to get in because there's about a 20-foot passageway you've got to go through to get into the king's chamber where it's only 38 inches high, 39 inches high. So it's like that's the, the, the height of a bar, right? So you're kind of like hunched over going back and forth to get inside uh, the king's chamber. And, you know, when you look at this picture, you can see the eye. It's shaped like uh, it's got a, an, an iris, but it also has a slit for a pupil to pointing to the fact that it, it's more like a lion or a cat. And then it's got eyelashes here that he even drew on the, uh, on the pediment, right? And, and of course, the iris is also off-center. It's not at the center of the window, which is what you would think if it's a window pediment. And rather, it's on the center right above the eye of Jesus. Mm -hmm. right? And Jesus represents the sun or Ra. And this is the eye of Ra. Now, what we found is that there's so much more writing on this back wall that nobody's ever seen. We're seeing numbers here as well. Um, you can see the letter A right here, mm -hmm. right? You can see ER right above it, right here. All of these things are, that you see are actually all writing. I don't know how good the resolution is uh, for you because you know it's not as good when I, I can see. I can see it pretty clearly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can even trace the back of a profile of a lion which we believe represents the Sphinx right here. So this mm -hmm. is the mane of the lion. This is the nose of the lion. This is its back. We find also tons of other letters, the letter A showing up right here. And when you start looking at the distances, so from, from this side of, of Mary Magdalene to here versus this distance from here to here, the width of Jesus, it's exactly a phi relationship. Precisely. And it's alpha and omega represented again. It is the merger of this masculine and feminine. And we found so much stuff. Here's the Holy Grail as well. And when you overlay the pictures, uh, the sarcophagus ends up right inside this box right here, which looks mm -hmm. like out of place because like, why is it painted this matte color? It doesn't really make sense, right? Yeah. So we found so many things, uh, and we found eyes looking through the slats, right, or the grates of the ceiling also, like tons of eyes looking down. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so as we, as we went through this process, we found lots of other stuff. And then uh, I found, you know, that there was a connection as well to Anne Boleyn, which this is now starting to become more and more believed to be a portrait of Anne Boleyn, who was the mother of Queen Elizabeth. She lived with da Vinci the last three years of da Vinci's life in, a, uh, in the, the King of France's home in Chateau d'Amboise. And I found here an eye of Horus in the background of her painting, which, you know, 
was very clear for me to see. Um, and then someone else pointed out and said, well, I see what looks like a lion nose and part of the other eye on the other side and like a lion mouth here as well. And, and then even uh, the squiggly over here, which would tie to the Abdullah oblongata, medulla oblongata, which is that piece of the eye of Horus that comes off because uh, it's a representation of part of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so we found these eight different reliefs. Uh, this one, obviously, the, of, the, of the, uh, the bull was the most uh, significant. But, you know, we found others like this one as well. in the center right here you can see radial lines coming out and linear lines as well so this is right on the, the um, side of the sarcophagus mm -hmm. so now with all this in mind what do you think was the use or purpose of the sarcophagus I think it's about uh, spiritual enlightenment and ascension. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to, it almost seems like based on what you're describing, it almost seems like it would assist with some form of astral projection in a way. You know, it's almost like it reminds me of like a, a float tank, you know, like, um, but it has more of those, those sound frequencies and, 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 and whatnot involved in a float tank, which is just silence and stillness. But it, it almost seems like a way that someone could, do some form of projection, out-of-body projection. So I'm, I'm, science is something that's like, it doesn't catch up with anything when it comes to, you know, astral, spiritual, out-of-body, you know, metaphysics. It doesn't really touch on any of that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's fun for me to, um, at least as a thought experiment, to think that that could be one of its uses. I mean, what, what are you, what's your take on that? I've not shared this before. Um, so this is the first for me to talk about it, but I experienced that myself mm. when I spent about four hours in the sarcophagus. Um, I've shared it with other individuals, but not in a, a broad way like this. I, I laid in the sarcophagus. I found the resonance frequency. And what's interesting is that when you stop to take a breath, right? Cause you can't just keep holding without taking a breath. Your body gets into this autonomic response, just like breathing. You don't have to think about breathing. When I was in there, I didn't have to think about ohm chanting. Mm. And you heard in the background, people were ohm chanting in there. They were trying to find the exact resonance frequency so that I could say what I said to you, which is 117 hertz. And, but interestingly, um, the guy that was outside the King's Chamber, he could hear me because the entire pyramid is like a big speaker. I mean, literally, you can hear people when they're in that chamber. If you get quiet enough outside, it resonates through this giant 13-acre structure. Right. And I was uh, doing this, you know, just going, and it's the sound of a cow. You just go mm, like a mooing sound. Right. And you just find that frequency and it makes that whoa, 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 whoa. And it continues to resonate while you take your next breath because it continues to reverberate. Right. And the exact length of time to take the next breath, you then you start over again and it never has a, it never breaks the resonance frequency. Mm. So you get into this kind of ohm chant um, uh, meditation process and you lay there 
And all of a sudden, I personally experienced an out-of-body experience. I found myself on the ceiling looking down. And then I experienced an incredible uh, astral journey, right? That was something, I, again, I, I don't really share with people, uh, but, you know, I, it was very real. And I went all around uh, for about three hours, various parts of the Orion Spur of the galaxy. And I, I experienced that. Mm -hmm. And I even had, you know, a guide uh, helping along the way. I believe that the Great Pyramid is about spiritual ascension and merging the Ka and Ba mm. of Ur Kaaba. I mm -hmm. fundamentally believe also that the pyramid helps us when we have when we're ready because we've learned true self acceptance. It's the world is not tough, as I said already. It's not tough because people don't like each other. It's it's become tough because people don't like themselves. It's not the sin that makes the world bad or difficult or, or full of struggle or suffering. It's the shame. It's the shame. You, know, you go back to Adam and Eve, right? Mm. In the garden of Eden, Adam, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of left alone for a while and God comes back and he says, Adam, where art thou? And Adam says, uh, he's hiding because he's ashamed. And the Bible says, Adam was ashamed and he covered himself, right? Because he felt that he was naked. Mm, yeah. And so God says to him, you know, what have you done? And Adam says, uh, the woman that you gave me and commanded that I remain with, she gave me of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I did eat. She gave me of the knowledge of duality and I ate. So then God says, Eve, what have you done? And Eve says, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Now, I find it interesting that the first moment that shame comes into a reference in this ancient text, whether you believe it as scripture or whether you believe it not as scripture, just looking at it as a, a piece of prose, right? One of the oldest pieces of prose on the planet. The very first reference to shame is accompanied by a reference to blame. So is it true that it was really Eve that did it? Or was it this joint thing between them? Who knows? That was his perspective, right? And we cannot feel shame. Shame is such a low frequency vibration. It's probably the lowest of frequency vibrations. And when we experience that, we have to punt it. We have to get it out of our realm, and we deny it so deeply. Even its very existence cannot be there. And that is what creates this karmic loop. Mm -hmm. The shame that we build up becomes very dense. It becomes dark matter for us, right? We're carrying it around with us. And we ultimately, when we've come to the zenith of our separation in the middle of our lives, we ultimately are the only ones that can't even perceive it. Everyone else can see this gigantic shame that you're basically carrying as a burden, but no one themselves can see it until they finally learn to love it. They learn to integrate it. You know, Carl Jung said that enlightenment is not found by illuminating the light of your life. And we all say love and light, right? That's kind of the new age way to say, fuck you. 
right? <laughs> Love and light. Yeah, yeah. Right. like a namaste, yeah. <laughs> namaste, yeah, namaste, yeah. motherfucker, right, yeah. type of thing. The, the interesting thing is, is that we cannot find our enlightenment until we make the darkness conscious. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the universe itself, the part of the universe that we don't understand is vacuum. Maybe that's just the giant shadow. Maybe mm-hmm. that's just the part of ourselves. Maybe it's the it's me that is time. Time is spelled T-I-M-E. <laughs> I often like look at that and go, that's interesting. It, me. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. The time itself, the darkness, the dark matter, the, the things that we cannot perceive that are outside of our vision, that are outside of our scope of view, maybe because we choose not to see. Mm-hmm. Those are the things, once we make those things conscious and our own shadows conscious, that's when we transmute and we heal. And then that allows, that is the readiness that occurs to the alchemical process. That's the readiness that occurs with hermeticism. Mm-hmm. And as we come prepared with that mindset to the king's chamber and to the great pyramid, and there's no religion, you don't have to pay anybody for this. There's no religion, there's no control. There's no more, you know, like knowledge is power bullshit. That's just, that's gone. That's yesterday. That's last year. That's last aeon, right? No more separation, the two fish swimming opposite directions, right? It's, it's all one. And everybody has it within their power to, to see and heal and love themselves through self-acceptance. You know, I gave a TED Talk um, in 2013 called uh, Beautiful Minds Are Free From Fear. And in that TED Talk, I, I put forward a kind of basic, simple prescription of whenever I feel fearful, I try to replace that feeling with gratitude that I'm even grateful for the suffering. I'm grateful for the difficulty because I'm learning. And somehow I cannot feel grateful and fearful at the same time anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that is. Maybe other people can, but I I certainly cannot. I I haven't experienced that. Mm -hmm. And, And so when I give my next TED talk though, I think the next level is to replace judgment with acceptance. Learning to accept yourself wholly and truly love yourself means loving everybody else. It doesn't mean that you have to like love the things that you don't like that they do, right? I mean, you can still say, oh, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that. Or, you know, if somebody is like a jerk to you on Instagram or whatever, or they're mean to other people or whatever, you can still love them and block them, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. It's all your perception. Mm-hmm. And, and what is the world without our own perspective and perception? And one of the things that I do a lot of now is I draw the Merkaba. And as I draw that Merkaba and with intention, and, and people ask me all the time, why don't you do it on computer? Can't you use a computer program? Yes, I can use a computer program. <laughs> and yeah. I've, I've done many on computer, but I don't get the benefit. I even said this to Alan Green. I'm like, Alan, I wish you would draw this stuff because your pattern recognition will go through the roof Mm -hmm. and pattern recognition is being able to recognize the divine. That's really ties in with calligraphy as well. And the the beauty of an art of just simply drawing something out. Yeah. You know, in China, I, when I lived in Korea uh, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when I was in college, I was uh, 
taking a classical Chinese class. And I was doing what's called boot gulshi, which is like drawing with those big, mm. like, you know, those big brushes. And you're drawing these Chinese characters and everything. Well, it's funny because I got one framed. It's downstairs in my office and I've had it for 25, 30 years. I don't remember how long. And I didn't even know what it was that I'd written because it wasn't important to me then. I just found a script that I thought looked cool mm. in ancient text. And it was mixed uh, classical Chinese and ancient Korean. And so I was like reading a book one day, like a couple years ago, and I'm like reading the I Ching. And I turn the page and I see that exact image. And I'm like, holy shit, are you kidding me? That's what I drew when I was in college 30 years ago. And it's sitting on my wall downstairs, mm -hmm. right? I had no idea the, even the significance or the importance that's of the, that past the, connecting with the future thing, you know, that's beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had no clue. And you know, this happens in life all the time. Mm -hmm. And as we, as we connect with that other side, then we start seeing all the dots connecting, right? Mm -hmm. And people ask me also, you know, have you tried ayahuasca? No, I haven't felt the need to yet. Um, I've not done. You're, I'm, I'm just going to interject there and say you're on a trip, uh, you know, without the need for the drugs and the substances. You know, what, what, what you describe and what you, you know, allude to is I've done a lot of substances and, uh, just to use that as a reference point for myself, I, I, I like to, I like to do them because then I have a reference point of what's real. You know, it's really strange because then when I'm not on the substances, I'm like, okay, so this is the illusory world that we're now walking through. When I'm on the substances, I'm like, there's more, it just seems more truthful to me and what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing intuitively and, and, and feeling through the heart. Um, but what you describe is very much in line with a lot of what I've experienced on psychedelics. Um, so it, it's amazing when I hear you say these things. So, well, you know, the, the thing that I would really encourage people to do is, is when you, when you draw the Merkaba and inside that you make what's called Metatron's cube, right? And then you start connecting lines from each points of the six pointed star to the center of where there's a new hexagon that's formed inside of it. And that will give you lines of perspective and dimension. And you keep doing that continually. And I'll be doing a series on this. I, I did a post on it just a couple days ago. But as you keep doing that, it looks like a mess of lines. Like legit, it looks like a mess of lines. And you could look at that and see nothing inside of it. Mm -hmm. Or you could look at that and see everything inside of it. So some people will look at the mess of lines and I'll ask them, I'm like, hey, what do you see when you look at this mess of lines? They've got all these dimensional lines. It just looks like a ton of lines. And they're like, some guy's like, I don't see anything, bro. I'm like, oh, okay. I asked someone else, what do you see? I see a cube. I see a cube inside there. I can see that if I bold like some of these lines, I can make a perfect cube. Okay, what else do you see? Uh, maybe I see a tetrahedron. So people that are knowledgeable in geometry. Then I go to some people that are really knowledgeable in geometry and they'll see like all the platonic solids, right? Then I go to people that are like beyond that and they'll see 30 or 40 different geometries, some of which that have never even been discovered before. Hmm. The degree to which you can pull out and then bold. And that's what I do when I do discovery of geometry. I'm just bolding the lines. I'm not adding a single line. I'm just bolding the lines that would form a new geom geometrical shape or pattern. Now, people would look at that and say, wait a minute, those lines look random, right? It's a mess. 
And they might look at it, if they looked at it and use it as a metaphor for the universe, might say, that's entropy. Or you might look at it and say, well, wait a minute, maybe entropy is just not being able to differentiate one or two patterns from a sea of pattern. Because it's so patterned. Mm -hmm. Even pi itself, that's an irrational number. You know, I make a random number generator. Okay? One of the companies that I founded makes the, the new random number generator that uses AI and irrationality to create entropy pools. And we create the highest entropy pools. And we don't need any hardware to do it. It's all software-based, which is going to be a big deal for encryption and for you know, random number generators are used for everything. But we're the first irrational random number generator. And yet, even I will sit here and say to you, even though we meet all the randomness for criteria that's established by the government and NIST and National Institute of Standards of Technology, actually, I don't believe in randomness. Randomness is simply the inability to perceive the pattern that's there because there's always a pattern. And once you start from that mindset, then you know you've achieved a higher degree of sensation of oneness. So what I really encourage people to do is to draw this geometry and practice pulling out of this complexity, the simplicity of form, because that expands your consciousness. In fact, you could say that the higher number of shapes you're able to perceive inside that Metatron's cube. And by the way, it's infinite, the number of shapes. It literally creates all geometry that has ever been seen or ever will yet be seen. That's just intrinsic to the universe itself. The more you're able to perceive inside that, that's a barometer for your ability to communicate with the higher self your ability to communicate. And, and this is what Carl Jung refers to as the superconscious. So the superconscious is the merger of the subconscious mind and the conscious mind. You could think of it as uh, an iceberg, right? So let's, let's draw a little example of an iceberg here. So I'm going to, I've got the ocean, I've got the iceberg, and then I've got this big piece of iceberg underwater, right? Mm -hmm. Now there's a bird flying in the sky. So I'll put a little bird here. And there's sun, the sun is in the sky, and at night there's a moon, right? So sorry for my bad drawing, but yes. And there might even be a boat on the surface of the water. So now I've got a little sailboat on the surface of the water too. And let's assume that this iceberg is conscious. And its brain is up here at the top. It perceives separation from all of these things. It's in the water. Maybe there's like, you know, birds that it sees or a boat on the surface, but it doesn't know anything that's under the water. But what if everything that shows up here is actually a projection for the part of the iceberg that's under the water? So conscious mind, subconscious mind, the U inverse. When you achieve oneness of those two, then you transcend to another level of consciousness while you're still here. That next level of consciousness is what Carl Jung refers to as the superconscious, mm -hmm. where you have made the dark things conscious that you understand and you work together. I don't know if you saw that TV show called Billions. No, I didn't. No. It's it's with, uh, is it with The Rock or something? No, no. It's, it's, a, it's a TV show. 
that was on HBO, uh, or Showtime. Showtime, excuse me. And, and basically it's about this billionaire guy who has this arch nemesis. And his arch nemesis is the US attorney in New York. And he's a, you know, he's a billionaire hedge fund manager and the arch nemesis attorney is supposed to be the good guy. But actually he's the bad guy because he's all about just trying to make a name for himself because he wants to be a politician. And so everything that you assume is good and bad are upside down in the show. You see character traits from both of these guys that are reprehensible and very admirable too. Right, because everyone is equal parts reprehensible and equal parts admirable. Mm -hmm. So nobody's shit stinks less than anybody else's, right? Mm -hmm. I was laughing my butt off today when, when I was like going by and I saw this, uh, this meme of like Corona beer and at a store, right? And it had like toilet paper on top. It says one free roll of toilet paper with you know, a case of Corona beer purchased, right? Yeah. And, then, and then someone says, it's like, wait a minute, coronavirus is a respiratory problem, right? Virus. And corona, by the way, means crown. Corona is crown. Corona beer. Right? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it's a respiratory problem. So why is everyone thinking they're going to like, you know, shit themselves to death or something? There's like no toilet paper anywhere. My wife was at the store yesterday trying to buy toilet paper. And there's like no toilet paper anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because of the mass hysteria and fear that's going on. Well, the whole point is that when we can start to make the unconscious conscious and we merge these things together, then we have abilities that we didn't know we had. Mm -hmm. And you might even experience life differently. Not only, I would say you're going to end up probably quite a bit happier because like nothing bothers you at that stage. Yeah right? Mm -hmm. But also, you're going to be loving to everybody and nothing is going to get at you. You know, it's, it's kind of what all the great wisdom seekers and the polymaths and all the spiritualists basically have pushed us towards, which is the very simple message of love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. The very simple message of judge not lest you judge yourself. Mm -hmm. Love yourself and you will love your neighbor. And that, that's the only thing, you know, I don't need a religion to teach me this. I don't need a cult. I don't need somebody to follow. And, and I certainly don't want to be that for anybody. But the message is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love yourself as you love your neighbor. That's the message. And that's the simplicity and beauty of life. And mathematics is just a means to help expand your consciousness through being able to converse with yourself. Mathematics is a link between this part of the iceberg and this part of the iceberg. And when those two things work together, like in the show Billions, this arch nemesis, they finally decide, hey, let's join forces. And things get really fun for them because they're not battling against each other anymore. Mm -hmm. And usually the subconscious just wants to be acknowledged, just wants to be loved just wants to be recognized. That's what we all have inside of us. I wanted to just quickly ask you, and it does relate to, um, I guess it ties in a lot with what we were describing here. And it, it's, I was going to ask you about psychedelics, but you kind of touched on that. And I wanted to ask you specifically because what you describe about mathematics and, and geometry as a language of communication, especially from the unconscious mind to the conscious mind, on uh, DMT, for instance, or on ayahuasca or any of these uh, psychedelic drugs, people often describe when they go into these kind of lucid states or these um, dreamlike states that 
they're being communicated to through geometry. Have you, have you ever heard stories like that from people? Like I hear Absolutely. it all the time. And I, and I do believe that it is in, to some degree the subconscious mind communicating as best it can. I mean, some people would say it's aliens and other entities and this and that. I don't think it's always the case. Maybe in some cases they may, you know, encounter something. But I do believe at a base level it is just the subconscious mind communicating as best it can and trying to get that attention and trying to, you know, I'm here, I'm trying to help you, I'm ready, you know, we can merge, we can join and, and mm-hmm. do great things. So mm-hmm. I just want to know if you've had any experiences, not, not personal experiences because you haven't had uh, mm-hmm. psychedelics per se, but from other people you've spoken to um, about that type of stuff. First of, you know, first of all, I will say this. I, uh, I'm not against ayahuasca or anything like that. I, I just haven't felt the need to, to do it. Yeah. Um, it's just a tool at the end of the day. It's just a, another tool. If the opportunity arose, I can't say I wouldn't necessarily seriously consider it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really curious about LSD in particular. I don't know why. Uh, mm-hmm. But that one is, of all the psychedelics, I think is, is probably the most uh, interesting for me to kind of explore mentally. But, yes, the, the experience you're talking about um, is something I've heard from a lot of people that have done it. And, and believe me, people think... There's just the geometry stuff I'll post sometimes. They, they all think that I'm like like on some bender while I'm posting the stuff. I don't know. Yeah, don't know. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, when I, when I look at a lot of what you'll, you'll post and what you'll, you know, create, I look at it and I think, well, I don't think Robert's on something, but he's certainly like drawing patterns and he's, you know, discussing things that the people that I know that are on things all the time, you know, I, I don't, you know, frequent psychedelics too often, but... Um, I'm not you consider like marijuana. I do that pretty frequently, but uh, other than that, that's about it. Um, yeah, when I when I see your posts, it blows me away, um, and that that's really why it, that encouraged me to reach out to you to begin with because I think you transcend. It's funny we've been talking about language. I think you transcend certain barriers that language have imposed. Uh, on a lot I agree of with your comment on language imposing a barrier, and that's why you know returning to a universal language, and maybe that language is going to be a combination of math and geometry and telepathy eventually mm. yeah but but i think there is power in the voice also there's i mean definitely power in the voice and um you know one of the things that i came across was a mantra i guess that uh in looking at that analysis or that photograph of the king's chamber you know what's written on that wall right I, i'm like really fascinated i want to know what was written mm-hmm. on that wall and i showed it to somebody and they immediately looked at it and they could read urdu and they said it's loka samasta it's om om loka samasta sukino bhavantu which is an ancient uh, sanskrit like estimated to be at least 7000 8000 years old uh, statement of may all beings everywhere be happy and free May my own happiness and freedom illuminate theirs. It's an ancient mantra. So it's Om Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu. And you keep repeating that over and over again, which I thought was really, it resonated for me when I, when this person. You know, that's actually, um, if you ever get a chance and if you're interested in it, um, download or the audio is good. The Shiva Sutras, it actually Mm -hmm. has, it goes through, uh, I think it's 30 some odd sutras. And that sounded a lot like one of them. Which is a uh, loka sumari sudkam or something like that. Yeah, it sounds. It's got loka. Well, I think loka means world. Okay. Um, and uh, or like the universe, mm. right? Samasta is everyone, right? Uh, mm. 
Sukino uh, is happiness, and Bhavantu is kind of like, so let it be written, let it be done type of a thing. Mm. And, uh, but very simple, very simple phrase. But, you know, I, I think that we all of us have the ability to tap into our own natural centers for making DMT. I think some people will use uh, psychedelics to be able to kickstart that because we yeah. got calcification on our pineal gland and all yeah. that type of stuff. So, so yes, I, I'll, I'll say this, that I, I do try to be mindful about what I take and ingest into my body. Uh, I recently went uh, vegetarian, which, you know, was not hard. I'll say this right now, not hard at all to do. Um, I don't know, something shifted in me just not too long ago, in fact. And when I came back, I wasn't vegetarian. And when I came back from uh, Egypt this last trip, meat just kind of, I don't know, it just sounded repulsive to me for some reason. Mm -hmm. And it was literally one day to the next, like, I can't do this. I just, I, it was very bizarre, which of course was interesting because family life changes, everything changes when all of a sudden, you know, and I'm not going to the vegan level and stuff like that. And I don't, I won't okay. say that I won't necessarily do that. I'm just following what I'm listening to my body telling me. Right. And, mm -hmm. but, but I, I think that another way to, to bring forward this DMT that's natural inside your mind. So maybe you constantly be on some microdose or something mm -hmm. is, is math and geometry and expanding consciousness and, and curiosity, like really wanting to understand yourself, understand with the right intention and curiosity, and then just let the universe kind of speak to you and flow through you, right? Birds don't have to be taught how to be birds. And you know, whales don't have to be taught where to mate. They just know, right? We as human beings, we, we also probably don't need to be taught if we knew how to tap into our oneness and who we actually are, right, and our role in it, maybe all the knowledge in the, in the universe is actually available to us, just like geometry is available to us. But whether we, we choose to jump in, right, to that. And I don't think, a lot of people think that there's this big conspiracy that stuff was hidden and, you know, this information should have been known for thousands of years and why is it not known for thousands of years? And, you know, there are these 13 bloodlines and all this stuff. I'm, I'm just not a big believer in that stuff. I'm just not. Mm -hmm. Because I see it all a reflect, as a reflection of what's happening inside me. Mm -hmm. Right? And so I, I tend to look within first before I'm looking outside. And, and, I, and I, I believe that, you know, hermeticism was left there. And, you know, things like Rosicrucian, wisdom, etc., it's not telling you any to, to subscribe to any particular religion per se. In fact, it's teaching you non-duality. It's teaching self-love and no shame. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you study it, you realize that the reason why it's hidden is so that it can be found by you. Mm -hmm. Not so that it can be taught. You know, this is one of those things that I think we live in a world that people are so used to instant gratification. You know, people will sometimes, when I'll post a geometry or something, and they'll say, explain everything. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not wanting to explain everything because I, I don't want to ruin the movie for you. Mm -hmm. You're on a personal journey, right? It's like, I'm not going to tell you the end of the book if I'm telling you, recommending a book for you to read, right? Because then you won't experience that book. And unless you experience life, 
And I think that's fundamentally why we're here, why we experience this. I was about to say, you're pretty much alluding to the, the exact reason for existence. Yeah. Yes. You can't learn things without experiencing it. You know, I can study something theoretically, but until I'm like getting my hands into it and dirty and experiencing it, I don't really know what it is. You know, unless I go to Alaska, I can't tell you how blue the sky is in Alaska with no pollution. This is actually an image here I want to share with you real quick. And you can see it's the universe. Uh-huh. If the universe is basically expressing itself and then it's looking Eyes. back on it. Yeah. Yeah. And this you know, is very much like what you're describing here and the, the, the purpose for existence. It's, it's just to have the experience and the experiencer and then for them to become one. Yeah, that's one of the statements of my friend, Sim Harmain, as well, which is, you know, we are, you know, the universe looking back on itself. Yeah, that's itself. exactly that photo. Yeah. And, and it's funny that, that, you know, we have this narrow perspective like this you, which is this I, looking at this one segment of the universe and saying, oh, that's, that's what the universe is. And it's separate from me when it's actually all connected. Mm. Right? It's, mm. it's connected through this wormhole type of a thing, right? Or Einstein, Rosen, Bridge. But I'm more excited than ever before that we're on the right path. Mm -hmm. And bizarre as the world is right now with coronavirus and everything else, this is part of this process. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like entropy. <laughs> it seems like entropy. Yeah. But actually, for it even to exist, I remember the first time I went to the pyramid in 2017, we were there on the exact day. And here I was in the pyramid having this really great, you know, sort of spiritual experience with 200 people. And on the exact same day, in front of the fake pyramid, the Luxor pyramid in Vegas, 500 people get shot. Wow. This is duality, mm. expressing. Every action must have an equal opposite reaction. Until those actions on the other side are fully transmuted and accepted and loved for just the purpose of experiencing them, they will continue to plague us because our perception will be the plague. In life, I've said this so many times, and I strongly believe this, and I first heard it from Matt Kahn, which is, we attract everything that we judge until we no longer judge what we attract. Another way of saying that is, in life we attract everything we judge until we learn to love and accept everything that we attract. Mm -hmm. That is what the transmutation is. That's the shift. Mm -hmm. And I got there through, you know, means of mathematics and curiosity and love, candidly, and crisis, of which I'm very grateful for now. And, you know, Every day is a, an adventure, you know, I, hey, I was meeting with a group last night that wants to, you know, do this new show, right? The real Indiana Jones. I never thought that I would be doing something like that. Yeah. I was, I, I was writing an email to Dan Brown yesterday, right, about this new Da Vinci Code. I'm like, I'm just loving every single moment right now. Good mm -hmm. and bad. And you know, as you continue to to express yourself and, and operate in that way, you'll you'll notice those things coming, being drawn to you as you're drawn to them. You know, it, it's this beautiful dance that that's uh, kind of playing out. It really is beautiful. You know, and I, obviously I'm not super thrilled, I guess, being honest about the whole coronavirus situation, because I can't do my normal day to day work. 
But, you know, I'm also looking forward to, hey, if, if we all get locked in our houses next week, I've been wanting to get caught up on some, you know, alone time. Because mm-hmm. I haven't had enough of it lately. You know, I haven't had a chance to be able to draw as much as I like to draw or read and contemplate and study because I've been sort of surrounded by lots of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I want some alone time. So, you know, everything that happens to you, it's about your perception, how you choose to react to it. And that will determine your experience. You know, 90% of what happens to us is what we perceive happened to us, not actually what happened to us. So mm-hmm. if we can change our perception, we can change our world. And expanded perception to the point of infinity. So if I could get to the stage where I could look into Metatron's cube and perceive infinite geometries and be able to name every one of them, that's God realization. Mm-hmm. Because the same would be true as well for looking at the subjectivity of everybody's truth. And that means I have to have empathy and understanding and compassion for everybody's different truth. Mm-hmm. They're all just divisions of the number one in mathematics. And then going back to, you need to have that within your own self in order to have that for others. It's, uh, yeah, it's really wonderful. <laughs> well, I think uh, we've had a pretty good, pretty build. Uh, it's about, what, two hours now, a little over two hours? So I think we had a great chat and I think we covered a lot. Um, if anyone has any questions for Robert, I'm sure he's more than happy to uh, answer those and I'll include all of Robert's information, links, all that in the description of this episode. If you want to have a look at that and delve down deeper into anything that Robert's describing, I also encourage you to check out his Instagram, just cracked over a hundred thousand followers. Big congrats on that. That's a huge milestone. Yeah. I, I, when I saw that, I was a little bit, you know, a little bit excited for you because uh, it, it's, it's exciting to see how excited other people are becoming about this type of stuff. You know, it's, it's like what you said at the beginning of this episode that most people are not looking to the schooling you know, system to learn, they're learning outside of that. And I think the content that you produce is really contributing to that in, in, in a great deal. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for taking the time to, to have this chat. Perhaps we'll do it again sometime. I'd love, love to. Mm-hmm. Love to. And I, I appreciate it. And thank you for what you're doing to, to help spread this message, you know, and again, it, this is not at all about a religion or a dogma. In fact, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what, what, I hope the message that people take is that it's about total acceptance and self-love. Mm-hmm. And as, you, as we all experience that, then that will really change the world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you have to stop doing the things you love to do. In fact, it means you love everything that you do. Um, it also means that you can still contribute to the world in the ways in your career and everything that you have been doing already, but you might want to make some shifts and changes. You know, I made the decision to stop eating meat. Okay whatever, you know, and, and I don't want to judge other people. I'm, I'm over that. I'm over judging other people. Now, it doesn't also mean that everyone's going to see what you see. And that's another quote that Da Vinci left us where he said, there are three classifications of people in the world. Those that see, those that see once shown by others, and those who don't see. And it's interesting because he, he doesn't say those that can't see. He says those that don't see. I think that's an interesting nuance because it implies some element of will. Mm -hmm. And not everybody is ready yet to accept themselves fully. 
And the degree to which they're willing to accept themselves is when they're willing to accept everyone else as they are without any changes. Mm-hmm. You know, and think about how powerful that is. If Don't we all just want to be loved for who we are mm-hmm. without any conditions? And why do we place conditions on our own life? We do it with time. It's like, you know, it'll be great when I achieve this or when I graduate. I'm placing a conditionality on my own happiness yeah. based on some future point in time that may never arrive. These are really self-imposed limitations. Because you know, even, even when I've had, uh, see, I, I've experienced, we've all experienced love of a, you know, a mother or a father, you know, even the way you love your daughter. And I, I've had, um, getting back to psychedelics, I've had a, a magic mushroom trip. Uh, I always do a meditation in the shower in the mornings and I like to do it on a, like a stone shower and preferably in a basement shower, very specific. I like to be deep into the earth, have the water coming down and have the stone tiles and everything. And I do a meditation. Usually it's head down, eyes closed. And I've gone and done a bunch of different trips like that, um, you know, where I've left my body uh, without psychedelics. But in one instance in particular, I had magic mushrooms and I was just sitting back in the shower and I had this feeling of this water pouring over me and it was this infinite well of divine love. And it just poured and poured onto me. And I kept just, I guess, I don't know if you'd call this the ego or whatever it is, but it kept just trying to grab and cling to these uh, false illusions of, uh, you know, shame and blame and all these things, things that you mentioned. And as I was just trying to grab onto these things, it's like they just kept disintegrating and evaporating under this like flowing water, under this, under this unconditional love. And it was beyond anything I've ever experienced from a parent, from that that I would share with, you know, uh, my, my wife or my dog or anything. This love, it had truly no conditions whatsoever. Almost to the point, if I tried to offer something up to it, it would just be questioning, like, what is it that you're offering? You're offering me nothing, basically. If I try to offer shame, there's no shame to even be offered there. It, it, can't, it can't withstand the luminosity of just that glorious, altruistic, all compassionate love that I was experiencing. And I think that everyone has this at all times, at all times. Like as we speak, you and I both have this pouring onto us. It's infinite, never ends. And we can't really comprehend infinity, but it never ends. And it's always pouring on everyone. And we just put these layers upon layers to prevent this from happening. And then we just forget that it's there entirely. So I think that having these conversations that I think just mainly these conversations is really one of the big factors of what's causing that shift in, in humanity. People are coming to that realization, mm-hmm. opening up, you know, expanding themselves. I think a, a lot has to do with the heart as well. And, uh, and I'm, I, I'm a, into religion and into a, specifically the, the relation between Christ and Hanuman is very interesting to me and the opening up of the heart, exposing the heart to the world. Because in doing so, you're, you're, you're revealing your vulnerability, but at the same time, you're doing so in such strength because there is strength in that vulnerability. So um, I don't know how I got on this tangent, but I, it's really just what you were describing no, earlier just reminded me of this flowing of love and that the people just really don't embrace it and don't surrender to it. And I think that more people need to do that and really accept that. And uh, I think it just takes a lot of surrender. and, and, and getting Surrender is, is a beautiful word. And... Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to, I didn't really answer, I was just thinking back, I didn't answer your question very well uh, on one topic. So I just want to touch on this. Sure. Sure, I do answer it well, because you talked about psychedelic trips that people have gone on, and then they talk about uh, maybe experiencing 
communication with either the higher self source or some alien entity or something like mm-hmm. that, maybe angels or whatever. Um, and the way I, I would answer that is as follows. If I'm a grasshopper and I live in a field, what is my universe? If I never leave that field, that's my whole world. I don't know anything but what the grasshopper would experience. You know, what other kind of bugs are there in the field? Every once in a while, a big dog comes along and probably you know, drops something on me. Well, that kind of sucks. But I probably see that as completely like unlucky. Right? It's just like, oh shit, I got shit on today. Yeah. Right? And I have a very limited consciousness right, on what I'm experiencing. But I'm, I'm maybe still happy you know, in that living in that field. Let's say I die, I get reincarnated, and I come back as a monkey. Right? You mentioned Hanuman, right? Yeah. The monkey man. I was just in India recently when I went to go meet with the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was interesting because I was thinking about, okay, if I'm a monkey, then I live in a jungle. So now the amount of biodiversity is much greater than the field, right? So my biodiversity around me is now both flora and fauna. I have different trees and everything. I'm not just a grass field or high, you know, sort of like wheat field or something. I'm living in a jungle and there's, there's different animals. There's a sloth, you know, there's, there's other species of monkeys. There's, uh, there's, you know, lions potentially, or, you know, big cats, leopards or whatever in this jungle. And I have to now learn how to deal with those expansions of this field of my existence. The biodiversity, the flora, the fauna has now increased. Now, let's say I live in Arkansas. And to those that live in Arkansas, there's nothing bad about that. It's pretty funny. I was just on the phone with, uh, before I went to Egypt with, with, uh, with Mohammed Ibrahim. He's a famous Egyptologist and hieroglyphics expert who was with me the night I discovered the Alpha Omega. He's one of the guys that said, did you make that? It's pretty funny. <laughs> and then he stopped himself. He said, of course you couldn't have made that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. But, but he says uh, to me, he's like, oh, I, I was in Laughlin, Nevada speaking at a conference, right, on Egyptology. And I'm like, dude, he goes, I, he goes I, I call him, he goes, I'm in Walmart in Laughlin, Nevada. And I'm like, dude, you're in bumfuck Egypt, right? That's <laughs> like, yeah. and he's like, what is bumfuck Egypt? He's from Egypt, right? And I'm like having to explain to him, like, that's like really backwater stuff. So let's say you live in that town and you never travel, you never go anywhere, you never see beyond you know the mountains you never see anything more than that that is your world that's your universe that's your experience the people that live in your town you know they end up in similar jobs and i lived in a small town in nebraska and lots of my friends stayed in nebraska they stayed in that same small town they never traveled anywhere so they've limited the scope of their venturing out of the zone of their consciousness right And the more you push yourself out of that zone to have more diverse experiences, you meet different people. I mean, if you live in a certain part of the country, you may never see ethnic diversity. Seeing somebody, when I lived in Nebraska, we had one African-American kid in our school. (laughs) One. And he played every sport. And he was a rock star in every sport. And he was like everybody's buddy, right? But like literally it was like, oh, yeah, he could have been an alien to the people that lived in that small town when he ended up moving into that town, okay? And so as we go to the next level, I moved to a big city. I've got lots of ethnic diversity. I'm traveling all over the world. The scope of my world is now expanded. I've got 
absolute experience with biodiversity and flora and fauna. I go on vacations to Africa. I see and experience all kinds of different things and I'm meeting all kinds of different people. I never thought from all walks of life that I would meet. As we transcend to the next octave, and I use the term octave on purpose, right? This next stage of consciousness, why would we not have another expansion in biodiversity? Mm -hmm. You know, you use the term, uh, the, the phrase octave. I, I literally just, we, the last episode of this podcast was with Paul Selig, author and channeler. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this word. I heard of it. Mm -hmm. And he uses those same term, the same terminology, octave, and raising humanity up to a higher octave. So it's yeah, very we, interesting. I mean, each octave has its own undertone series, right? It's all musical harmonics. That's right. Music and math are just mere reflections of each other. That's it. Mm -hmm. And their nexus is geometry. So you could say that geometry is just frozen sound. Hmm. Geometry is frozen sound. That's why when I, I make a logo, it has a certain resonance. That resonance is speaking to us because it has a silent music associated with it. You know, light is the music that we cannot hear but can see. And sound is the, is the light, right? The artwork that we, that we hear but cannot see. Right. It, it's like they're connected. They're absolutely connected. Mm -hmm. And they're just transverse waves versus longitudinal waves. But but the point is, as we go to higher realms of consciousness and right now we're pushing through an octave shift, which is a gap. There's a gap. Right. Each of the notes exist as undertone series, like layers of an onion. And then within each note, there's another 12. And in each note, there's another 12. But there's actually 14 notes. In a full octave. And we use baseline mathematics. And I published this paper on this, on the geometry of this, which is going around music studios around the country right now, because it's proving that the mathematics of the geometry of 432 is creating closed natural geometries, whereas 440 does not. It's a geometric relationship. No geometry, if you look, if you add the sum of angles of all geometry, they will always sum to the number nine without exception. Whether they are platonic solids or whether they are Archimedean solids, it doesn't matter. So you take a, a, a two-dimensional polygonal geometry, Archimedean, uh, or rather uh, Euclidean geometry, and you, you know, take a square. How many, what's the sum of angles of a square? This goes back to fourth grade, right? It's 360 degrees. What's the sum of angles of a triangle? It's 180. So three plus six plus zero equals nine. 180, one plus eight plus zero equals nine. So what's a pentagon? 540. 5 plus 4 plus 0 equals 9. What's a hexagon? 720. 7 plus 2 equals 9. What's an octagon? Right? It's 1080. Right? 1 plus 8 equals 9. I could go infinitely, and it will always sum to the number 9. And, and so the relationship is that if I played in, in Hertz music, a F sharp, which is 360 hertz, and I play a perfect F-sharp major chord, the exact same one that resonates in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid, F-sharp major chord in five-part harmony, and I, and I match that against the sum of angles of polygonal geometry, it's perfect. Hmm. So 360 degrees becomes 360 hertz. 540 degrees for sum of angles of a pentagon becomes 540 hertz. 540 hertz, is a C sharp. That's part of the F sharp major chord, right? So then the hexagon, 720, 
that's back to F sharp again. So I started with 360. I go 360 with the, with the square and circle. Then I go 540 with the pentagon, just increasing the sides by one. That's 540. Then I go 720, that's F sharp again. So now I've got a perfect fifth relationship in music. And then I go to the next one, right? And the next one is going to be 900 hertz, right? Which is a heptagon. 900 gives me the A sharp. And then I go up again to the next one, which is going to be 1080, which gives me the C sharp that's necessary to fill out the, the triplet inside the F sharp major chord. Each geometry with each expansion of one side is creating in perfection the entire F sharp major chord in five part harmony. And that's true also as you go up to higher octaves using platonic solids do the exact same thing. It's all music. And as we go to the next level, those the last two notes, right, of the 14 notes that actually resided in octave, two, two of which are actually gap positions at polarity shifts. So right before you get to the next octave, there's a gap, like a black hole, like a still point. And it's enharmonic. It doesn't har harmonize with anything. It doesn't sound good. It would be the equivalent if there were a B sharp in music, right? We just say B sharp is the same as C. But what if there's actually a subtle difference between the two? There's actually another note in there. When you use nine base math, it actually shows that there should be another note in there. We've been in that note. That's where we are right now. We're about to jump up to the next octave. But breaking through that barrier of the still point means a polarity shift, a pole shift, right? And that's what's happening right now. That is where the world consciousness is today. And so as we jump to that next octave, then more and more people are going to have more and more experiences reported with increased biodiversity in the universe or galaxy. That means that now you will start experiencing, as some already have, relationships and interdimensional, you know, uh, experiences with extraterrestrial beings. It's no different than the grasshopper who got reincarnated or learned that there's more to the universe than just the field. Mm -hmm. it's That's just all it is. Broadening and opening up the perceptions of everything, yeah. It's seeing mm -hmm. more and more geometry in Metatron's cube and being able to look at all the mess of lines, and which is spoken of as entropic, and actually pull out the, the simplicity and the syntropy from the entropy. That's what the next level is. So I want to make sure I answer that question for you. I think, you know, the way the government, I thought it was pretty funny when the government said, oh, we're going to release all the UFO files. And then they said, oh, shit, we're not going to do that now. Changed our minds like two months ago. And then the military said, well, if we did it, it would open up grave national security concerns. Like, okay, if you were trying to keep us from like freaking out, that didn't help, right? Yeah. <laughs> if people are really worried about yeah. like, Independence Day coming or something like that, which I don't believe either, because no, no. the thing with expansion of consciousness, even in order to get to that stage, if there were sentient life on other planets, wouldn't they also be subject to the same parameters or barriers to entry? to overcome superluminal travel? Of course they would. And the only way that they could get there also was through ascending and transmuting through duality and beyond it. So I don't believe in like bad aliens coming and the, you know, people are saying there's this agenda and there's, I don't believe in any of that shit. So yeah, a lot of people get really caught up in a lot of the conspiracy stuff, the greys, the uh, reptilians and all this nonsense, you know. Um, but then, you know, you got other people that are, 
they see the good entities, the Pleiadians and all this other, you know, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't bother getting too caught up in all that stuff, but some people are very into it. I try to avoid posting a lot of that on the page as well, because I find that it just contributes to the confusion, delusion. You don't really need to bother with all that. Don't need to just do away with it all because I think that, uh, Going within is really the the only solution. All the answers to the universe are inside you. Mm -hmm. And it, it's funny because sometimes I'll post stuff that's a little provocative just for fun, right? Like I posted one meme that was just like as a joke. And it had a picture of the solar system and all the planets were there except Earth. Earth was like a pancake and it was like flat as a pancake and it was a square. And then the meme said, you know, oh, this is awkward. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, oh my gosh, the response I got from the flat earth community was unbelievable. Yeah. Just, it was just kind of like a funny thing. It was you could have seen it from their perspective, which is, hey, it's awkward, you know, the earth is flat and and this is the truth and here's what it is. But no, they didn't see it from that perspective. They saw it completely from a different perspective, which was, you know, sort of poking fun at wait a minute, all the other planets are around and we're flat. We have a dome, right? And it was uh, it was really fascinating for me to see the reaction I got. But I got like a thousand comments like that fast. Yeah, it was nuts. It yeah. was that, that's the way you know social media goes. You got to post something that's like a little triggering for some people, and then which is weird how the algorithms do that at all. You know, it's um, a little bit strange, but it is what it is. That's right. Well, listen, yeah. I, I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. And uh, I'm happy to answer anyone's questions. And if you would like to follow this work on a real-time basis, I'd actually do most of the posting myself. I do have uh, someone who helps me named Jimmy Janover, who does, uh, he's fantastic. And he does a lot of my uh, Facebook stuff. Um, and, but I do probably 75% or so of my Instagram posts. Um, it's like, so it's, it's real-time as well. I don't, I'm not worried about impressing anyone, including myself. So I post what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling when I do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not worried about, oh, this has got to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, I'll say it's not perfect. It's fine. Mm -hmm. It could be a work in progress. In fact, I might be asking you to help me see something. That's right. Yeah. I, I like that aspect of things. I like getting the community involved and uh, I think people like that too. Um, yeah, totally. We're all in the same journey. Everyone's in the same journey together. Mm -hmm. So we might as well enjoy it. We might as well do it together. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Robert. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And I'll give you the namaste. Thank you. Namaste. <laughs> right. That does not mean love and light F you, right? That means yeah, yeah. I enjoyed this time with you. Yeah. And, uh, and I learned a lot listening to you. And uh, I, I've learned a lot also following you. So thank you so much. And, and to all your viewers, have a great have a great weekend and all the best and, and, and uh, hope to see you soon. Perfect. Thank you. I hope to see you soon as well. Take care. Bye-bye.